and welcome to the Crash Chords Podcast. I'm John. I'm Steve. And I'm Matt, a.k.a. Stormageddon. And I have some disappointing news for you listeners today. We are not going to be doing an album review. Well, not the same way, at least. <laughs> uh, we're doing a little something a little bit different today, as we are prone to do. I, it seems like every, like, eight or it's nine It's our show, and we get doing, bored, so we kind of have free yeah, reign, really. Up, we come up yeah. with different ideas. And today, well, the music that we are going to be discussing is a little bit different because it was original pieces, then remixed by an acapella artist, then remixed by DJs, and then produced under a Creative Commons license by Game Chops. So it's a little bit of a rabbit hole going on right here. We're a little removed from our criteria that we normally apply to guests and listeners alike. Yeah. But the important uh, question is, how many degrees to Kevin Bacon? Uh, probably too many because Prob- we're not talking probably about Probably if the very next remix artist was Kevin Bacon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he well, just decided okay, he to remix be. these. Um, but anyway, <laughs> we're going to be doing Smooth McGroove and his album Remix, or kind of his album Remix. He is an acapella artist from the YouTubes. He is very well known for remixing or reintroducing music as acapella, but specifically from the video game genre. And that's where this source material actually comes from. These are all different title screens and action sounds and outro music of video game pieces. From mostly the Nintendo, Super Nintendo, Genesis era, a little bit of PlayStation 1 thrown in there, but stuff that's been around for, you know... 15, 20 years one for the PC most part. One PC game and one PS3 game, too. Yeah. Okay, yes, yes. <laughs> so. I, forgot the, I forgot about Little Big Planet. Um, but first off, he took that original music and then did it in acapella using mixing where he had up to, I don't know, eight, nine voice lines for some of the stuff that he was producing on YouTube. Some of them probably even more. And then that original music was licensed and given to DJs to then remix further. So it's like five or six different degrees of what's going on right here because it's A, that begetted B, that begetted C. So in a nutshell, it's hard to actually do a rating scale to this sort of thing without really considering the source material and where it's coming from. And it gets a little bit too wishy-washy for this sort of a thing. So just to recap, you have taken us not just to video games, which is a separate medium from that which we normally do, Uh and not just to video game music, which incorporates the soundtrack element, which we rarely incorporate into the show, Uh but do occasionally, but to remixes of video game music. And then actually to remixes of the remixes of the video game music. Well, reproductions yeah. of the original. Uh, yes, that Smooth, then Smooth McGroove is not really the remix. remix. That's it's more of a, a cover. He was sort of his, yeah. his fun YouTube you know, fan art thing because yeah. he has a very nice voice and he likes to lend it to the melodies in the games. So, uh, yeah. That's, let's just say for this, I have quite the spiel because <laughs> I have to cover all the It's a steep mountain to climb. All of the... It's a steep mountain to climb. That's what it is. That's okay. the In this particular case. Waka, waka, waka. So I have to address all the categories. So starting at the top, of the list. Uh, this episode is obviously going to be very video game centric. Each piece below is a reimagining of themes that have made an appearance in different video games, and I will now theorize that your experience with said video games will deeply color your perception of those pieces. So, indeed, I believe this episode should be very video game centric, as it should be music centric, and we should all be very forthright with those experiences as we go along. Beginning with me, because 
I ought to establish the fact, perhaps interestingly, perhaps contrarily, that I will be playing a bit of a different role here. To remind listeners of where I'm coming from, I am not, unlike Matt and John, a gamer. And even Matt and John are not the biggest gamers I've met in my life. I think work and a wife will inevitably curtail that just a little bit. But uh, next to me, a six-year-old is likely to be a bigger gamer. And this is mainly because I did not have any game systems growing up. Still don't. <gasps> Shocking, I know. But it's not like I was against them or anything. It's not like my parents were against them or anything. So don't jump to any conclusions of a sheltered upbringing. This is far from the case. I'm an only child, so I was spoiled in other ways. Believe me, we had our conversation on toys last week. I had plenty of toys, thank you. Also plenty of movies. I'll talk your ear off on film for sure. But game systems were different. They were expensive. Like, if my parents had bought that, that would be Christmas, essentially. There really wouldn't be much else under the tree. And looking back on it, I'm actually kind of grateful for the eclectic array of other gifts that I had in lieu of the big shiny game system that inherently requires many more purchases so that you're not stuck with just the first game that was bought on the same Christmas in which the game system was purchased. So yeah, it, this is around the time when game systems started costing around $60 a pop. And then four years later, you're just going to have to shell out another giant lump sum for the next generation. It just never made sense to my parents. It never made sense to me. And it still kind of doesn't make sense to me. And by now, I've just led a whole life where my primary interests have drifted dramatically from the gaming environment. I just want to say quickly, though, had you been a PC gamer all that time, it would be less caustic. Ah, uh, well, you're moving on to my second oh, point okay. here, because now that I've established myself as the total black sheep among us, let me begin by working my way back towards some common ground. I did mildly get into computer games for a time, still nothing crazy, but I dabbled in about one game for every genre, I would say, and I was extremely obsessive about the games that I played. They would literally be the only thing I played for months. If I was in the mood for a first-person shooter, I preferred Unreal and Unreal Tournament. Ah, oh, Unreal Tournament. And and that was basically it for yeah. first-person shooters, but I love those two games. They were great games. If I wanted a racing game, I preferred Need for Speed 3. If I wanted a, a side-scroller, I preferred Pitfall the Mayan Adventure, which is the PC version of the Super Nintendo version. Mm, you had me yeah. up until Pitfall. Yeah. Well, I beat it, all right, so <laughs> screw you. <laughs> anyway, if I wanted an old DOS puzzle game, it was Superplex, which I'm still working on, by the way. After 18 years, I am on level 92 out of 111, and I'm almost through the list, actually. This is like almost all the games that I have played. Finally, for a strategy game, I played the crap out of Civilization 3, couldn't get into 4, my friend is trying to get me into 5, I understand these represent major improvements on the game, but what can I say? I bonded with 3, alright? 5 was actually a really great game. I understand and, that. I and I hated 4 I as well. It. Uh, <laughs> 6 has already been announced. That's true, too. I, I know that. And but... I, I believe the picture I saw was of Mahatma Gandhi holding an atom bomb, which was really awesome. Yeah. Also, some friends got me into StarCraft back in college. Uh, StarCraft, Starcraft. StarCraft 1, couldn't get into 2. Actually, no, no my, okay. my computer at the time could not play 2. Yeah, 2 is a little, a lot more advanced. A little yeah, challenging. Not many so, yeah. people got into it. Just so you get it, it's a short but intense list. But it's all important that these were one among each category, because being that each of these games represented a new category for me when I first encountered them, there was invariably a long learning curve for each game. Which means, forget about going over to friends' places when I was younger, and still today, the foreignness of a game system controller, which for everyone else is like another limb, there was no learning curve to speak of. I was consistently horrendous. And it's actually very much like learning a musical instrument when you think about it, because say back in grade school orchestra or grade school band, if you do not own the instrument and you don't get to take it home to practice, you're not going to improve. You're just not. Because in the company of an orchestra, forget it, that's just one part of the skill set. The rest has to be done in home, in private. In fact, like I said, my friends have always cajoled me into playing
playing games with them, either to appease their vanity in watching me f up, or more sympathetically to watch me learn the game in their presence, which is like going to a lecture when you're a visual learner, nothing will stick, it's a complete waste of time, uh, which is actually not an analogy that applies to me. I figured it would apply to John, because he once advertised himself as a visual learner. Yeah, I, I, I don't do good with walls of text. There you go. Please continue. <laughs> with my wall of text. <laughs> or you know what, maybe it's just simply to do the thing that isn't my idea of being social, but clearly is for everyone around me. So I'll join in, I might watch, but it's not a grand old time. Also, gaming commentary is kind of like us with music commentary. If you're on the other side of that knowledge barrier, it can be right over your head. Like, if you haven't heard the album, why are you listening to this podcast? Well, if I don't know the game or its subtleties, why am I here playing in this group listening to the commentary? It doesn't make any sense. So, yeah, not my fondest memories. If anything, it's becoming more like peering into an open wound at this point. But, yeah, like anything else, the three tiers are money, time, and willpower. Right now, I'm behind on all three fronts with the pastime, so although it's not very high on my priorities list at present, I always picture that at some point I'll catch up and buy every system and start filling in the games one by one, though probably with the same contradictory casual obsession that I described a moment ago, i.e. not fit for any kind of group activity whatsoever. Anyway, I seem to be drifting back into Black Sheep territory, but let's pull out again. The music in these video games is not something that it takes a gamer to appreciate, but I do believe it takes time. See, gaming is essentially an act of imprinting. You could argue that music of any kind imprints itself upon you, and sure it does, as does music from movies that you cherish, memorable scenes, memorable lines, memorable music to match, boom, it's imprinted. And of course the same goes for games, but this is where I'd argue it actually gets more imprinted in the case of gaming, for the obvious reason. You play, you die, you play, you die, the music restarts. Meanwhile, the stakes are high, the adrenaline's pumping, the whole body is actively immersed in the experience, that can make anything memorable, for better or for worse. It could even traumatize you. You hear the music from the boss battle, and immediately your palms start sweating. And yes, while I do tend to prefer, I guess, the mental freedom that pure, unencumbered original music gives you, and not those attached to franchises, well, the impact of the gaming experience is still not lost on me. And that's why I felt the need to rattle off each one of my short list of gaming obsessions above, because if I'm just sitting in silence, still to this day, all of that music can creep right back into my head. Civ 3, with the music associated to your tech tree and what part of the world your culture's from, all distinctly different themes, yet very relaxing. And then Superplex, forget about it, it's a DOS game. There's only one five-minute theme for all 18 <laughs> years, all 92 levels. It's the only thing that I hear, so pick a voice, bass, treble, mid, I will hum it front to back for you. Hell, even my benchside experience with games is no exception. My old roommate sat me through all of Mega Man and Metroid and Battletoads, which I nearly beat by the way, which gave me a good ego boost because it proved that I wasn't inherently sucky at games. <laughs> if I had the chance to play, maybe I would have been somebody. But all of that old music followed me around for a very long time. So yeah, games sort of encase themselves into a certain type of nostalgia, which I think has the capability to be more potent just because of the multifaceted aspects of gaming itself. And this isn't hard science, by the way. It's just my humble observations of the gaming world and of the world in general around me. It's relative, of course. You can attach yourself to anything. But as far as discussion points take us, I'd argue that there's both a pro and a con to this. The pro is stickability, which is a success story on any level. And the con is, well, stickability. I may like a lot of video game music, but I don't think it's all top tier. There is definitely a lot of crap out there, even gamers will admit that. But when something becomes a part of your nostalgia, 
then it becomes hard to distinguish the good from the bad sometimes because it's just, it's ingrained. So it's like learning about a dark family secret late in life. There might be denial when someone tries to confront you with the fact that it may not have been as good as you originally thought it was. So this is just some things that we maybe should consider as we assess our earlier experiences with the games that we're about to go through. And that, that's pretty much my piece on gaming itself, which leads me to the last point, which is very relevant today, and it's one that I'd like us to discuss collectively. Remixes, the art of covering for electronic musicians. See, remixing requires that one first understands the original work fairly well, and one might imagine that the less there is to understand, the more room there is for creativity, but the more there is to understand, the more challenging the project. And I will leave it there, as I am now very parched. <laughs> well, I mean, as far as remix culture and video games go, they go hand in hand and go way back. Um, the most popular, I think, of all remixing sites is Overclocked Remix, which has been around since, I think, the early 2000s. Probably Actually, longer. I would start calling it even further back in that video games themselves were remixing themselves from way back when. Sequels almost inevitably drew upon what the original games were doing and then just adding to it, especially when you started going from 8-bit to 16-bit, 16-bit to all the way up to like 64-bit. Within just a few generations, you're going to get a lot of flagship pieces like Super Mario and Sonic and Mega Man and just franchises that were so early that there was nothing else to play, so they became franchises. You want to sell a new system? Well, you're going to have to sell the game. The game that's going to be the launch specific piece. What comes with the console itself. Well, if, you're, if you're in the 10th installment of a series, obviously you're going to have to start sampling yourself. You're going to rework the original theme and have it remake make its appearance in all of your games subsequently. Actually, Keep with, it new at the same time? That's challenging. It, it didn't even go that far. I mean, if you look to just Mortal Kombat 1 to 2 or Street Fighter 1 to 2 to 2 Turbo to 3 to, I forget, because the numbering system was all screwed up for Street Fighters. They very easily just borrowed from the previous game's music and mm. borrowed the previous themes, especially when you start talking about worlds or fighters or specifics like that, they would just go, alright, well this was iconic in A, so we're going to bring it back in B but with flourish, with flair, well, we with have, more flush. We flush. have to remember though, there's a, 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 a dividing line between remixing and recomposition because some of those songs were just recomposition with more advanced technology or better instruments or whatever else. And so it, there is a line between that. But it was it wasn't, you know, the culture that we're doing today where third parties are doing the, the recomposition. Um, so that's why we do term it remixing. Right, right. In fact, one of my favorite, like, full-fledged scores was the original Halo, and it got better in Halo 2. Right. When they went to Halo 2 and added rock guitar to what was kind of stodgy but epic enough Gregorian chant, it was perfect. It was just, here, we took something that you're really familiar with because you love this franchise. It's a flagship, so let's do... You know, let's rock it out. And they rocked it out, and it was better. Well, one of the most famous franchises to do that also, and we talked about earlier today off the air, is Super Smash Brothers. In all its incarnations, it's always pulled the original tracks from the original games featuring those Nintendo characters that are now fighting against each other and updated them, even in the later console generations, add orchestration and instrumentation beyond just the beeps and boops. And that also... Is, is a cool way to see the evolution. And I, some of the stuff on our album today is in the vein of that. It just feels like a natural evolution electronically of these songs. And Even though they're based on a guy who did them a cappella with no electronics whatsoever other than the track layers. 
And then there's the final little bit, which is where they just, uh, they're just meant to hit a chord and they're just meant to be a very specific story in and of itself, contained in maybe just a few bars, like the Final Fantasy fanfare, which has been in every single Final Fantasy. Well, the reason why you keep reintroducing that is because that meant victory in game one. So in game two through 15, with a couple of double dips in there for XX2 and 13, I don't even remember how many versions of 13 there are. Three, I believe. Yeah. You have just a, a video game reward screen sound that automatically will make you go, I remember hearing it the first time, whether it was in this game or the previous game or five iterations or ten iterations ago. Right. It works. And, and with Final Fantasy, it was always it was those open opening notes that were the same, and then they usually composed it a little differently after that, adding and expanding it in differently. In fact, I love the fact that in the newest one, Final Fantasy XV, they mock it. Yes. In fact, after a battle, one of the NPC characters that travel with you Actually hums, da -na 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 -na, which is the fanfare. Yeah. You won, here you go. So it was a nice little, it was almost a cheeky little, like, yeah, kind <laughs> of trying to break the fourth you wall. You won, but here's fourth wall right in your face. Um, See how quickly me talking, be the only one person talking, like, it just stops? Because, <laughs> yeah. like, I don't know a lot of these intricate details. Like, I always well, witnessed them, I always understood them, but it's it's kind of like being on the peripheral of a of a franchise. Just, wait, but I know that it's as intricate as the stuff that you find in movies, and I can appreciate it from that standpoint, because I've sat and watched a lot of games front to back. So I appreciate the narrative aspects of it, and I appreciate the musical use in that way. Right. It's just... The, the details beyond that, then that's out of my league. Right. Well, it's like when we covered Stranger Things, we all dive deep into that world. So we were even more yeah. familiar with the music because we watched the entire narrative unfold. I wouldn't even say it's like out of my league. It's more like it's not as relevant to my current life. Right. Sure. Yeah. Well, it's like for me, like besides the jazz that we've covered on the show, I'm not super experienced with jazz. And when you go on a tirade about whatever note or whatever change <laughs> I'm not or whatever. super experienced with jazz. Uh, right. And so, but I still feel left in the dust yeah. and you're not even that super experienced. With yeah, it. it's and so it's similar to that. I'm not a guru, at least. Uh, no, for sure not. We um, have, we have had luckily gurus. today. You have me, who has played probably more video games than I, I'm probably twice at what Matt's at right this That's point. Not, you have no idea, man. Um, I, well, I told you, I, I, I've known some people who I feel would would either wince or talk your ear off on certain things that you have brought up because everything, everything, as with games, as with music, as with everything else, people tend to be very opinionated, and it's not always the same like level-headed discussion that we have tried to cultivate at long last about music. With games, you're, since you're dealing with nostalgia, there it tends to get very hot-headed. Well, and it's also a more infantile medium compared to music or to books. It's been around less time, so it's still raw as far as how people talk about it. And to defend my honor, when it comes to classic games, I've probably played triple what you have because you missed a whole generation of Nintendo games that yes, you never had. Yes, but I had a Nintendo for the entire time that we were missing that generation. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like I wasn't putting in the hours. All right, guys. <laughs> I, I, I swear to Christ, me and John are going to have this out at a later date, but I'm disputing that. Anyway, moving on. Quite smoothly to Smooth the Groove. <laughs> so the album cover for Smooth McGroove remixed is just an animated drawing of Smooth McGroove and I assume his cat. Yes, his cat is actually well known for appearing in a lot, a lot of, of his videos. videos. Um, ah, but I, I see more going on here. Are I mean, those, oh, this, are those those bricks in the back? Is that are those Tetris blocks? Uh, well, Tetris blocks, Mario question blocks, uh, uh, the Triforce from Zelda. Clearly, oh, that's the Triforce. Okay, I thought that was like a Freemason oh, thing. Man, I, didn't. I just I just face <laughs> so hard on that one. Um, <laughs> Anywho, it is extremely reminiscent of like. Uh, 1980s classic Nintendo magazine cover. Yeah, or like even the game art 
um, the cartridges themselves always had these weird hand-drawn, odd Tron. scenes. Tron, Tron the video dream, game. Yeah. Not not the movie or anything like that. Not the album. Tron, the video game. That's what the five I'm getting from this. Because it seems a little bit pixelated. It's very simple when it comes to the color scheme. Blues, very soothing, though not very warm. They're still a little bit on the colder side because this isn't, after all, uh, just acoustic stuff. It is a little bit of glitch here and there. Well, one general observation about the album cover is the the deep purple or violet backdrop mm-hmm. has sets up almost like mix, mystical expectations of mm-hmm. the album, which uh, that can help or hurt. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that depending on how you view this, because it is very open to interpretation, that could, like you said, add or take away from your experience. There's another reason why I think it's good that we're taking on album covers now, like fluidly from week to week to week, because there will be occasions when you see the album cover and it does set up one expectation or another. And I think it's important to say whether you were thrown or not, just in the same way that we're all going to individually talk about our experiences with these original games. That will affect your interpretation Mm -hmm. of these remixes. So let's begin with track one. Melee Smash Brothers Remix. Who doesn't know it? Of course, this is remixed now by James Landino. Once again, getting to the rhythm here, James Landino remixing something that was done by Smooth the Groove of the Melee uh, Menu 1 theme, which it doesn't indicate, right? But that's what it means. Right. So, well, Melee is one of the versions of Smash Brothers. It was the second version on GameCube, and that's where this track is from. Though I think subsequently since Melee, it's been the menu, the character select song for every game since. Gotcha. And so... Yeah, so this track is, by nature, just knowing that name and knowing that connection, this is get-hyped music, because character select screen on any fighting game is the time to get hyped. You're picking your character, you're seeing who your opponent's picking, you're trying, you're ramping up for the actual conflict, and this song more or less reflects that feeling. Well, uh, first of all, I should mention, I don't know the composer, in, the original composer in each and every one of these instances, but I did look this, this one up as being uh, Hirokazu Ando. He was the original composer of this theme, and I do have to say, just some comments on the original, I actually enjoyed a good deal of this soundtrack. There are some stunning compositions from open, the opening theme mm-hmm. you actually get at the very beginning uh, to Menu 2 later on to Fountain of Dreams. It, it really is a phenomenal, great orchestral score, almost over-composed in many ways, but just for a game that's, you know, get your friends together, goof off a little bit. It's It's got all these components. It's got heroism, pain, suffering, romance, all of this in the soundtrack, and yet it's for a game that doesn't have much of a narrative to itself. The narrative is really more appropriate for the individual franchises that sort of let to that game. So I find it a little bit interesting all that it was so dramatic. Well, because you want to bring in the element of those games. And yeah, the music yeah. will do that because think about who you're playing as. Link, Mario, Luigi, Samus. These are all hugely... Uh, larger-than-life heroic characters, and so it makes sense to me. But that brings me back to my point, because I guess the most commonly known track off this whole entire soundtrack is the Menu 1 theme, is this this theme, because every single time you finish the, the, the melee, you go back to that screen, which means, alas for me, this is probably one of my least favorite themes on that soundtrack. Everything else was a little bit more impactful to me. This particular theme is not a theme that I relish in because it's just every single time you die, you go back there. It's almost a disheartening theme in many ways to me. 
But let's talk about the original piece that's going on right here, or the faux original piece that's going on right here, because it is capturing that original theme. It's the acapella, the vocals. Right away, I'm like, okay, I recognize it. I wasn't looking. I wanted to quiz myself. I wasn't looking at what game, what was being drawn from for my first listen through, and I was like, all right, so we're playing free-for-all. Right away, I got that. It was great, but... There's those additional beats that come in that really do push up tension that wasn't really present in the original piece. It did a lot to make that heroic nature feel like it was actually becoming more important, more dramatic, more necessary to what was going on. That, plus the bass that drops and what we get right after that, was definitely, in my opinion, an expansion on it that I felt worked, that I felt did add something to what was going on. Well, yeah, the remix is distant enough that I was at least curious to see what he had to do, what his take on it was. And another trick of the remix artist is kind of messing with your expectations on familiar themes. You expect a certain thing to go down because you know the original so well. Um, in this case, yes, I did know this one pretty well, but it's like then he, you expect a thing to happen and he throws you a curveball. So like the original has sort of this marching stud beat in the background, which, again, I always found a little annoying, actually, in the actual game. But here, Smooth McGroove kind of, he retains the stuttered beat, but instead, it's got this jazzy marimba effect, which I found really, really cool. And the chord changes are so much more pronounced in the, uh, the smooth, I should say, Smooth McGroove, James Landino version. Uh, if anything, he may have even added to these chords. The, the original chords were not this moody. No, for sure. And I think it's also interesting that the the rise that he adds this build up that's very famous and almost cliche to most trance tracks i think is where i defer from john a bit like i agree that it sounded good and it it made sense for the song but it's a tired cliche that's been done so many times like you build it up you drop the bass and then you go back into the main theme now that said he does do something a little interesting with it because after a repetition or two he brings in distinctly identifiable pac-man sound bites <laughs> to enhance some of those beats which specifically it's the it's the big dot yeah. sound you hit you, you eat the big dot and now the ghosts are blinking when everything gets a little bit louder and yeah. you have to try to race around to get all four ghosts and so i think that that was interesting nod to the later games where pac-man is actually present as a competitor in the games yeah. but other than that it also again was kind of a aha nostalgia moment and then it was kind of washed over me well, after that it, it felt like actually as much as it was nodding towards the new games and what and you know the fact that Pac-Man comes in and everything like that it also was distinctly 8-bit it was yeah. distinctly old school arcade sound into something that up to that point felt very modern so this was going back 30 years this was going back and doing something that was a little bit different plus it was freeform on top of everything else it mm-hmm. wasn't actually just replicating what had come beforehand. It was something that was actually wholly original for Melee. It was something that was divergent, deviant. It was separate. It was something that was just refreshing for me. I enjoyed it. I don't usually enjoy bass drops, but it it was just a nice little enjoyable, fun moment that I think did add to it and I think actually detracted from my previous statement where it felt like a lot of the tension was actually released. A lot of the heroic nature was actually released. So I'm at odds with it. I don't the know second if it was you hear it in a, in a different environment, yeah. you're you're kind of yeah, you are released from all of the tension, maybe the good tension, the anxiety that you feel in the game itself. It's like that actually it lends to the piece. In which case, if you sacrifice that by changing it up, then you do lose a little 
bit inherently. But anyway, yeah. let me let me flip that up with something a little bit more positive because this is going to be a, a general positive point throughout the album. I really am going to struggle in, in ways to say this too many different ways, but of course, Smooth McGroove's vocals are quite beautiful. Yeah. And he has that tendency, of course, he, he doubles himself up, he'll, yeah. he'll harmonize into multiple these tracks, multiple tracks. It's, the vocal is, it sounds like vocalization, it almost doesn't sound real, but mm-hmm. it's, it's him, and well, actually, it sounds less real here because, of course, then it's remixed and spliced and diced, but it adds a very ethereal air to the main melody, which kind of framed it differently for me. So I, I, I almost accepted this as an original composition in many ways. Uh, the second point I was going to make here is those interruptions when all of a sudden every, it abandons the melody completely and goes into those marching band segments. When it's like, mm. it's almost, I, I equate it to a marching band because it's like he completely interrupts the melody and it's like how... When you typically hear like a drum line, they're usually playing medleys. They're mm-hmm. going from quickly from one track to another, familiar themes. It's kind of their own version of remixing in many ways. But then in between, in order to break up those melodies, they usually do this solo thing where it's just them kind of riffing and being an awesome drum line, but it doesn't really have anything to do with any specific melody. It's kind of what happened here between like the first phrase and the second phrase. It's just kind of a clanking and then back and forth between the, uh, the, the Pac-Man big dot sound that you said before. Right. And also that that clanking, and I, I did like this as a as a as a breakup moment. It was just unfortunate that there really wasn't much de- development beyond that. It did do a a b a b thing pretty starkly. Yeah, I think my final note on this track would be that as far as an intro track to an album, even though we're not really going to have much in the way of arc or theme, I do get at least an intro feel from this. Like hearing the yeah. song, I go, I get hyped because. For me, the nostalgia attachment to Smash Brothers. Right. But still, it's a great way to start an album because it, it, it's got that energy. It may conjure different connotations for me, but it I understand it. It yep. makes sense as the obvious starting point for the remix album. So let's go to track two, Chemical Plant Zone from the Sonic the Hedgehog remix. And this is remixed by Hyper Potions. And it is from Sonic the Hedgehog 2 specifically. Yes, Sonic the Hedgehog 2. So World 2. Sonic... Yes. <laughs> Specifically, yeah. World Two. Yes, World Two, uh, which I, obviously is lost on me because Sonic is is interesting that it's a game that I wish I was around a little more. Uh, unlike Melee, which I was around a little too much for my own good. But Sonic, I really, really wish I had more experience with Sonic. I was always kind of enthralled by the fast-paced nature of the game. It's the whole focus of the game. But I never really knew a lot of people that had Sega systems. I remember witnessing it maybe once and once or twice, and the speed of it at the time was just like, what is happening? I don't understand this. And of course, I want to continue the trend like Steve started in the first track and shout out to the original composer of this which was Masato Nakamura who um, I believe worked on the first Sonic the Hedgehog as well. Yes, please do keep on top of that because I, I feel the need to go back to the source material as, no, we're, it's an as we're usually want to do. Um, but yeah, as a result, I guess the Sonic franchise is music that I tend more to imagine rather than remember actual pieces because I never had a lot of exposure to the game. I had to look up the original, the 16-bit version for the Sega Genesis and I, I gotta be honest, I was loving the original through and through. It was still extremely electronic, obviously the jump from 8-bit to 16-bit is steep though not so steep, you know, it, it gives that piercing edge, that quality of just of just cutting right through your 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 skull in many ways that the original 8-bit era did. And this does the same exact thing. It brings out all of these evolving sections in the piece. I didn't expect it to be so layered, to be honest, but I guess there's no reason I shouldn't have, considering the fast-paced nature of the game. This theme was just absolutely incredible to me, and it ends with something completely unorthodox, like a polka theme, almost, at the very, very tail end of the theme, where everything slows down a little bit. It's kind of like the, uh, 
It's kind of like when they tell you when you're doing laps, they tell you to walk the last lap just to, to cool down. The cool down, that's what it is. Um, yeah, for me, this track, it's funny because when I first heard Hyper Potion's version of it, I got really into it because I love the original and I got I kind of really got caught up in the groove of it. But then when we were listening together and we kept referencing back the original, once I listened to the original again, I went, oh, yeah. Yeah, I love this. And <laughs> and forgot how much I love the original track and then kind of had the same problem Steve did because again, the original track here and this happens a couple times on this record just does more for me. A because of the immediate nostalgia of the original, yep. how much I love that game and played it over and over again. And this version, though true to the feeling of it, doesn't really do much beyond that and even doesn't undercomposes the original. The original had all of these ups and downs and changes and they didn't really, if they were in this track, they were buried be below a lot of the techno-y stuff. And that techno-y stuff did a lot to, it, it didn't even bury it, in a lot of cases it supplemented it. Uh, specifically the siren work, mm -hmm. especially right before it goes into sort of like a frantic trance remix of everything. It's a one of those yeah. standard rising beat drop. Exactly. An upward slide because of course you need upward slides just to really build the tension. This is something that I, this is like the, the beat drops I hate. This is well, the, yeah. Especially I, since the original composition had that rise. It had that buildup. You don't need to add a faux buildup. But in this case, we can actually put a lot more beats per minute than what uh. the original game was able to do. So that's what they decided to go with. It was not as satisfying true. Taken by itself, I, I'd i be hard-pressed to see this not fitting in with a more modernized version of that same game, sure. though. It would work to a T. It, it does capture a lot of the feel of the speed, of the idea of building up speed, which is very important for the Sonic franchise, of sure. just letting that music build that speed, especially the time out, you're about to die kind of music was perfect. It was it had the same sort of exact build. It might have been borrowing that idea in this piece. But I don't know what it really did to divert itself from the original that would make this piece unique enough not to just recapture nostalgia. Well, it depends on what side of the argument you're on, because remember, right now, of course, we are what maybe some people out there might accuse us of pulling a sort of faux pas in making sure that every single track we go to, we refer back to the originals. But you just need to, you need to pick what side of the argument you're on. If you consider remixes independent innovations, then we shouldn't be uh, referencing it at all. But then, of course, we have to consider this just in the realm of trance music, and I think that's a little tough because uh, it's going to need the nostalgia edge in order to really distinguish it in that environment. Um, well, otherwise, you're on the other side, and it's a constant case of, like, how does it compare with the original? Did it, what did it do to the original? How does the original intertwine? In which case, I think this should be a constant discussion of ours. But, yeah, I'm kind of on the same side as Matt. The, uh, this was a very weak trance version of the original theme. I thought, I thought the original, honestly, had done more with less. Yeah. Considerably less. And just with those few sounds, you know, it was agree. able to achieve a lot more energy. It felt it felt even faster paced. It, yeah. I, 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 I'm not even sure if it was faster paced. It just felt that way because of the piercing nature of that stuff. It, this is why I still think, you know, chiptune music, I mean, it's 16-bit, but still that's like, I think it's why it's still very, very relevant because when you compare it against stuff, you can, you can, he can busy this up as much as he wants. I don't think it would ever achieve the same energy factor. No, for sure not. And I think that's my biggest sticking point here and kind of my last thought on this track specifically is the songs here have to walk this line, for me personally at least I'm seeing, of paying homage to the original 
but giving me something to chew on at the same time. I mean, for me, as long as the bass tone is still there, like the the emo raw emotion of the original track is present in this new track, I kind of tend to latch on. I think the biggest problem here was those faux buildups, those trance buildups, felt so out of place because for me, the original had those kind of buildups in them in a different way. And so I think that's the biggest disconnect for me. Well, for me, it, one problem is, yeah, I think huge portions of this, the theme was almost unrecognizable. Yeah. In the beginning, it's a little recognizable. The core melody is there. The whole intro hear, is You can hear the, the stuttered intro. Those are kind of similar, but it's all under the guise of, like I said, honestly, very forgettable trance music all the way up to 40 seconds when it settles on sort of a hip hop beat. It goes into a very different thing from this point forward, it just felt a it almost felt too creative for its own good, which is like I said, pick your argument because if you want to say this is well, it's not original, but if you wanted to treat this as a techno track and just forget about all of the things that it draws from, then it would still seem kind of splotchy to me. Maybe I would enjoy it more because I wouldn't have the reference point. Maybe I would just kind of gloss it over as an Maybe. okay as an okay techno track. But it wouldn't eh. definitely. It, it might well, you might like it more, but I don't think it would make it better, or you your and your analysis of it would change that much. Yeah. I think you just might enjoy it differently, which doesn't always have to do with quality. Well, established what I did, I guess, at the beginning of the show to show in cases like this, I'm not biased toward the game because of nostalgia, because I didn't know the game. Right. I listened to both these things back to back and. Automatically, the first one was the the original was more memorable. So, all right, that was a little bit of a, a little bit of a downer here. Let's go to track three: Dark World, Legend of Zelda remix. Uh, specifically, the game Link to the Past. Correct, correct? from the Super NES, right. and it, the original composition is by Koji Kondo. Um, and this is another James Landino version. Yes, and so here we're getting something a little meatier, I think, that I can chew on because this is the first time we're really kind of sticking to what the original composer did and growing from it. And I think that's important. I think that this is just a nice update of what the original was. And I think that's also because Koji Kondo has a habit of composing tracks that allow you to breathe and build with it. They just have the right spaces, I think. Well, one of the reasons for that is because of the visual art styles that have always been present in the Legend of Zelda series. Very bright, very multi-toned. Even when they were working in just, you know, eight bits. I mm -hmm. mean, the enemies were extremely brightly colored compared mm -hmm. to the scenery that they were built around which allowed the visual art to supplement what the audio art was doing. And in A Link to the Past, which was the first Super Nintendo versions of Zelda, uh, there was a lot, a lot more artwork to work with. Right. So you don't want to overpower your hero, which is the gamer in this case, with sounds and everything like that, because you also got to hear bombs, you got to hear that stuff. So it did lend the Legend of Zelda music just to be a little bit more pared down than a lot of its compatriots. I think also just because, again, like this is why I went through categories, individual categories in the beginning, because RPGs, you know, it's a more relaxed adventure. There's time to think mm -hmm. on the in the course of the adventure. Right. And so the music reflects that exact same pattern. It will be a little bit intense at times, but it'll always fall back because there's a more there's a more natural pace, you know? Things don't always happen. Like, Sonic the Hedgehog, as much as I love it, it's not a realistic scenario. No one does that. No one can go a mile a minute in the course of a battle constantly, front to back. It's just, this is actually more indicative, I guess, of what a, of what a battle would, has traditionally always been like. Lots of time in between. Which is what I think is where the starting point of taking this beat and adding in right up front 
a really club-oriented, very club-oriented, heavy beat work with a little bit of restarting in the beginning to, to sort of give that skip in motion. It's already building a lot of the sort of tension or adrenaline from the visuals that we would have been getting into the music that we're now experiencing. So when that siren beat steps in in a very steep rise and then it goes right into the acapella, I, I found that to be extremely satisfying for what was going on. Well, also, because here we're getting a build that's not a fake build manufactured. He is, for the most part, mixing this identically to what Dark World was and letting the natural uh, melodic feel of the song take him where he needs to go and building on that groundwork instead of trying to redefine the wheel, which I think works to the strength of this track. But to me, I have to be honest, it's for a very specific reason why that works. I have a little confession to make right now, and in terms of the Zelda franchise, well, I never played through any of it. I've seen enough of it. RPGs are actually not my thing, despite what I just said about my understanding why the music was composed the way it was. And in this case, I'm actually going to be a little bit of the naysayer on the original music, at least on this particular track. I don't think it's the greatest Zelda track out there, by any stretch. The old uh, Zelda's, Zelda themes, I think, although they're tattooed in the minds of those who played the game, don't really do it as much for someone like me. Because I'm on the outside looking in, I listen to the original theme, and it has the heroism, it has the romance, but it was kind of watered down, in my opinion, next to other things in that franchise and in other RPGs alike. It's simple, and maybe its simplicity adds to the relaxed RPG feel, like I said, but there always was something a little bit missing to me. But what does it matter? Like I said at the outset, stickability has made these themes a staple. Time plus interactivity breeds nostalgia. So, guess what? This works in both Smooth McGroove and James Landino's favor from my end, because as far as I'm concerned, this is a category that allowed him more creativity. If I saw Watered Down before, then remix it, fill in the gaps, like you said, but it's related to my experience with the game. Right. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, the whole intro, it's definitely sharper. It cut through me a little bit more. And then the, the sections following it, even though it probably has very little to do with Zelda, you know, that scratchy beat that, are, that it arrives at, almost like a washboard. It gave the, the B section, I guess, if we'll call it that, it, it gave it a more dramatic feel so that the section that followed it, when it goes back to the original theme, right, back to the main melody, it, it really can really quiet down a lot more. There's not as much stagnancy as, ironically, I saw in the original theme. Certain aspects that were also added to, such as the synth string work, such as uh, the real dub level, like dubstep level, deep section that was kind of like hot and pressure, the sort of thing that you get from like coal turning into a diamond. That's like, that the part I described thing. as a washboard kind of. That, like, those, and that doesn't even do it justice. It's sharper than that. Yeah, it's it's got it's got different levels than what you would normally expect from a heroic story. So it was. A nice level of tension that, like I said, the artwork and the storyline of the original, you know, provokes in your mind. But here, they're doing an excellent job of actually showcasing it just through the music. I feel like this is this is one of those things where they kind of took the video game and made it into music. Made the visuals and made the action itself into the music, especially with the transitions. Like, one part, after that really heavy beat, when you go into that 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 very silent rebuild, where there's just the voices and just the, like, I guess synth piano, it was sort of being evocative of that. It worked so well to feel like it was a post-battle breather. It did a lot to just add to a sense of release and fulfillment for what had just previously happened. Yeah. All said and done, this was, this was one of those ones which... 
And I'm probably going to throw on to my gaming remix, on to my, my standard, okay, I'm going to be doing some video gaming or I'm doing a long driving. Either works. So let's throw on Tombs. This is one of those tracks that just does a good job of making me feel like a hero. Yeah, I was definitely engaged through this one from start to finish. I think James Landino here does what he did in Melee, but builds on it and fleshes it out a lot more. It certainly served him, I think, maybe even a little better than it served Koji Kondo. Yeah. So, let's go to track four, the Hyrule Temple um, Legend of Zelda remix, and this is from... Zelda 2. Zelda 2. Which is often considered the black sheep amongst the Zelda games because they changed the gameplay style completely for this game. And it's also in Melee, of course, right? Right, of course, yes. It's featured in Melee on the Hyrule Temple stage, which is one of the more famous Smash Brothers stages because it's one of the largest stages in the game's canon. It was my favorite for well, lots of reasons. This one is composed <laughs> not by the same person as the um, Link to the Past was. This, of course, came before Link to the Past. This was on the regular Nintendo, and it was composed by Akito Nakasuka. Okay. And so um, I believe he composed um, the first and second Zelda games on the Nintendo. Right. But this is DJ Joe, right? Not Correct. The yeah. composer of the... Remix track we're talking about is DJ Joe. This is a little confusing. All right. Well, let's talk about the theme then. First of all, I liked this as a choice because it got to dip into some different genre territory almost. You know, if you go to what could almost be considered the hook or the chorus of this particular theme, there's almost like some tango influence I hear in that da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. There's almost a little bit of like... You can hear the the common tango that everybody knows from True Lies. I don't know when it was originally <laughs> composed, but anyway, you, you hear a little bit of that in, in the chorus, and also, well, all right, it was technoified, and it still sounds kind of cool in the techno version. It was it was interesting, and the melody in both is quite beautiful. I'm a little bit more on the fence here. Uh, I think it was just another take. Um, I'm hesitant to go too deeply in, but I'll let someone else go. It was much more aggressive than I would expect it to be. It was the the, uh, the main vibration that everything comes in on, those notes that were getting a little bit more warped, felt like it was trying to do something that I guess Zelda never really did before, at least in this point of its repertoire, which is go kind of like real dark, like surprisingly dark. At this stage of video games, they had not really breached the whole super dark aggressive theme, so it feels kind of odd for it to be paired up with something that is, you know, 30 years old. That, plus the spaces that start coming in on top of everything else, it felt odd. It felt like there was a little bit of an oddity going on right there. Sort of like it was two combating themes actually working against one another. Well, that's probably between the tango hook thing and then the main theme, which I know actually the the second portion of it, which just keeps climbing upward and upward. I really, really like that part. But I am going to disagree with you. Like, I think you're overselling it in terms of uh, dark. You know, I don't I don't really see a lot of darkness in dark here. Dark for I, this. I do dark see, for it. I do see a, a twinge of it being a little bit tortured in that second part of the melody when it keeps climbing upward and upward and upward. And uh, again, and the only problem here is that I'm I'm not seeing as much uniqueness. I think it was a nice take, but I still hear the original through and through. But that's a good thing also. Eh, I'm in the fence. Um, I do want to amend something I said earlier. Um, Koji Kondo was the composer of the original Zelda. This and continuing to add to that black sheep feel, which I hinted on before, this composer only did Zelda 2. It's the only Zelda game he's done. Oh, interesting. And so that actually explains a lot, I think, as far as sounding different from even the previous track and the previous tone 
of Zelda, although he has worked with Koji Kondo on other games, which is also interesting. All these composers, I'm sure, are contemporaries and have worked together before. It would not surprise me at all. That said, speaking specifically to this track, I think I'm kind of somewhere between John and Steve. I don't know. I think we're all kind of in the same vein on this track. I definitely, this album's on the rise for me at this point. It might it might seem like a negative since we don't seem to be taking a lot away from it, but I do want to stress the origin, that, that second portion of the melody is, I am particularly attached to, but I'm also attached to it because of the original theme. Yeah. So that, that is not exactly something that was done here, but yet it really sounded nice in Smooth McGrew's vocals. Right. So that's a positive. So to, to explain, I respect what was done here. The, this time the melody is completely apparent, which means less was done in the beginning. About a minute in when it gets more chaotic, he starts to mess around with the beat work in the background a little bit. But uh, yeah, overall I thought it was a good blend of the homage and the creative. Yeah, I'm I total agreement there um, for sure. I think that the album is kind of feel finding its way as far as a uh, collection of songs and I really dug this track because it reminded me not only of the original from Zelda 2 but also the Smash Brothers version which I am most familiar with since I as I said before is one of the more famous stages in the hi history of that game and we played on that stage a lot when the game came out in fact uh, me and Matt have like we kind of bonded over that game specifically, yeah, uh, with a bunch of our other friends. That was one of like the spurring for our friendship games. Yes. Like it, and it was one of those things. I, I loved Hyrule Temple. I thought that it actually, uh, as far as the music was concerned, I looked forward to it. Like the only other stage that I kind of looked forward to the music was Final Destination. <laughs> I love that Smash stage, but at the end of the day, just like the original, it was only added to by what was going on on the screen. So here, I don't think they're just capturing it the same way. Independently, you think it it's a little... Eh. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's, it's a still wandering. great. I still enjoy it and because of what it feels, but... All right, I liked the reggae interlude at the end. Yeah, actually, when it actually incorporated reggae, that was unique. Didn't expect that. But, you know, like I said, the I original, adds the original the had the what I yeah. consider to be tango, so it's yeah. like, eh, it was kind of all over the place anyway. In fact, what immediately follows that as well, that really dark repeat that they go through where it's it's almost like muffled, muted, you know, behind, yeah. behind a pillow. That was another addition that I think actually did more because they were trying to do less. They were trying to pare it down and kind of get to the core of the piece. And it left me on a positive note, but there was just like hiccups throughout that I, just kept I, me from engaging. I do engaging. think if there was a winner in the end, like amongst all versions of this particular piece if, from the original version from its appearance in me Melee uh, and I, and this piece. Yeah, I think this would win. I think it would win to me, actually, just because it felt more intense. It's just that, true, it is not being applied to the game. Had it been applied to the game, interesting. Yeah, interesting. I, I think for me it's a natural evolution of the songs, like the previous track, so I could see it infused in the game yeah. because it just feels like the next step. Yes, and I advocate that Smooth McGroove replace all melodies in all games from here on out. Yes, exactly. Track 5, Spark Mandrill from Mega Man X. Which is the most rock and roll Super Nintendo game ever. Um, I just have to say that while I've always been a big fan of the Mega Man series, and Mega Man in general is one of my favorite gaming franchises, Mega Man X did something for me in Super Nintendo's era because it just... It was the first Nintendo game and Capcom game to really feel like it was for an older audience. There was drama, you know, there was this kind of, there was a more intense story. You had villains who were actually killing and destroying and like, there just seemed like a stronger narrative and a more adult feeling. And that 
was also lent to the soundtrack, which had the MIDI equivalent of guitar solos and, you know, drum solos, which were super impactful. Well, I have my own bias here, but first, uh, the original composer is... There's uh, five of them, actually. Oh, so boy. I'm not sure who composed the song specifically, but the original five composers of Mega Man X are Setsuo Yamato, who I believe is the main composer. Okay. Um, Makoto Tomozawa, Yuki Iwai, Yuko Takihara, and Toshiko Horiyama. And if I butchered those names, send your hate mail, please, to matt.storm no, no, at it's, it's, it's Steve.nago. Oh, yeah, I got it wrong. You read the most mail out of all of us here. That, that, yeah, that's I true. usually get the pronunciations close. Close. I won't close. say right. I'll say close. But anyway, all those composers worked on it, but I believe Setsuo was one of the main composers. Um, either way... Not my first choice for of the songs to pull from that game. No, certainly not, and that leads to my bias. But first of all, we should also say the uh, DJ here is DJ Cutman. Um, yes, who, which well, I just am going to guess that Mega Man must be yes. <laughs> kind of up his alley. Yes. But uh, all right, yeah. My bias surrounding this is that I love the music for the original Mega Mans mm-hmm. very strongly. The original Mega Mans for the NES. Like I said, I was shown them probably too late in life in college. From my and from my limited knowledge of gaming, the Mega Man music I think is some of the best. I've heard in that whole realm. Uh, Metal Man actually remains my favorite of all time. And Metal Man's a good one. Yeah, yeah. Metal Man's a good one. Yeah, and the only thing here is that we're not in the 8-bit era, we're in the 16-bit era. Mega Man X, and having listened to the original theme for Spark Mandrill, I think it's cool, and I hear all the stuff you're saying. I like, I do think it was a, there was a new edge. I think it made sense to go the more, like, rock-heavy, almost arena rock route, with just the, the shredding guitar solos and everything. But, yes, yeah, Spark Mandrill, why this one? Why this one of them all? I, mean, I think it was because, if if we're, I'm going to draw upon what Matt said, it kind of was one of the lesser pieces, I guess, as far as nostalgia is concerned, and as far as composition is concerned, from Mega Man X. So, in many ways, it was not much more than a guitar rift on top of rhythm section. So you have a lot more area to work around. Well, if we're comparing 8-bit and 16-bit, another little problem I have is, like I said before, with 8-bit, I feel like everything is sharper. It actually adds something extra. The Super Nintendo, though, I don't know. Everything sounds highly compressed to get all those extra sounds in. I don't honestly know the mechanics of it all. I wish I did. But this track definitely uh, could have benefited from some bulking up, as it were, courtesy of Smooth McGroove and DJ Cutman. So yeah, I think this probably did win out in the end, despite the fact that the choice was a little strange. Yeah, I mean, honestly, once I heard it, of course, I instantly remembered it. And the kind of midpoint freestyling that DJ Cutman does with the beat work, I really enjoy. This honestly, and it's no surprise that DJ Cutman has also worked with nerdcore rappers in the past, though I'm at a loss to cite specific rappers he's worked with. Um, although it would be a shocker if he hasn't worked with Mega Ran, all things considered. Mm-hmm. Um, but that freestyle moment, as well as the beat work added to this, really makes this feel like more of a hip-hop techno track. It's something that I could imagine someone rapping over, which, uh, again, unsurprising for his work. And I really dug that. Like, it really kind of made me want to write lyrics about Spark Mandrill and throw it over this track. I thought that that would be really cool. Didn't need them, but I felt like it would be a cool addition. Well, also because Smooth McGroove is basically, like, you almost feel, yeah. yeah, you have constant vocalizations and he's vocalizing the guitar solos. The, 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 like, Mouth the, solos! The rapid guitar solos. And he's yeah. doing that with his vocals. It's, it's, it's really pretty incredible. And it's almost like a freestyle in the middle. And it's not just that. His breaths are being used extremely well, especially when they're being paired with that bongo tone. 
that was there from the very beginning. The combination of the two is very provocative. Well, we're talking about a remix here, so breath may have nothing that may no, be no, of no, no consequence. His breath, his the, just the intake breath that he was using in this. Okay, even if it's just a sample, it's, yeah. yeah, it's interesting. The uh, the rapid hi hat tap is another great feature and does a lot to actually contrast his longer vocals in the beginning and in the calmer sections of the piece. Uh, there's certain things like the pauses that it has right before the vocal intensity jumps up a notch, and even when his vocals get modulated to go full synth. I love that where it transitions from acapella to just a synthesizer using his vocals, really just chopping it up and just turning it into a wave format. It's just great. I love the blending of the natural and the mechanical, which is extremely appropriate for Mega Man right from the get-go. It's, it's a solid like homage to the idea with a great inspiration part to begin with. Yeah, I'd say that the A-B-A-B structure of this with the, even though the B more being like an interlude, really, I think, strengthens this track. I mean, it is more or less unchanging beyond that. The little nuances that John is mentioning are present in the verse parts, if you will, the A's, but beyond that, it does return to home. But again, it's built off of a core track that was really great. He fleshed it out. And so I just, this is all aces for me. It's one of my favorites on the record so far. All right. So we can move on to track six, Sticker Brush Symphony uh, from Donkey Kong Country 2. Correct. All Diddy's right. Quest. Diddy's, Diddy's Quest. Quest. It's not even right. Donkey Kong. It's Diddy. It, well, um, it is Donkey Kong because it's from that world. And um, the original composer is... David Weiss, who also, fun fact, composed... Pretty much all of the Battletoads games yeah. as well as the Donkey Kong Country games as well. The ice level is the best music. And the ice level <laughs> is the best music. And this uh, is funny, funnily enough, same for Donkey Kong Country. Ice level is the best music. It's all mystical yeah. and stuff. They're He's all pretty good, good though, really. Yeah. Uh, this also is remixed by Grimecraft. Grimecraft. Which, Wonder what he draws from. Mm, <laughs> um, all right, so this is a very different kind of track because of the. Well, speaking to the original, the slow ambient setup here. I mean, this is not a track that I anticipated. Again, Donkey Kong is another game that I really had little, very little to no knowledge of. I just knew the figure I could recognize in Donkey Kong, but that's about it. Um, but this is interesting because this is not something I'm accustomed to seeing in, in games from that era. It's almost like an 80s romance when you look to the original uh, theme. It, I feel like this is the scene where the character is having to make their decision. Will they choose love in the end in spite of it all, or will they take the second option? Whatever the hell that is. They're going to choose love. Well, it's pretty common in Donkey Kong Country games to have like a slower kind of intense song for either the underground levels or the underwater levels. And so that's actually pretty common for this series of games. Yeah, it's just, it was not what I was expecting. Sure, but it was it was a really, really nice original track. And as a result, oh, this pushes us back to where I was in the beginning of this album, yeah. uh, or toward the beginning at least. I think the Smooth and the Groove Grimecraft version eh, could have really stood, in this case, I guess it's more Grimecraft that's the culprit. The Smooth and the Grooves vocals did kind of lend to this very well, but the, the beat in the background, the techno pulse, I feel like Grimecraft really could have stood to turn that down just a little bit into something that at least, at least proposed something as relaxed as the original theme. It, it, it's overdone here, and each individual detail is, I would say, not adding to the whole. The core theme is beautiful, and again, no bias here, never had any Donkey Kong experience, never knew the music intimately, but this was a nice theme. It's not what I expected, but as a result, I'm left with something that almost immediately kind of yanks it back to a theme, to a to an environment, an aesthetic that's very familiar in this album. It's the the longer sweeps on top of 
everything that was getting to me. It, you, it was rising chords of synth that I don't think was really adding to intensity or adding to the overall emotion of the piece that it just felt like it was there. It was sort of like a faux intensity, especially when you get to the parts that really yep. just, just start low, rise high, and then cut in a clip. It was intense, but it was intense because it was the music rising, nothing to do with really the melody no. itself. Some of the approaches it has to the main melody and the way it was reimagining it, like the part where the steel drum steps in and redoes yeah. it. Later on, good. it gets a little better. I suppose it's more the intro that my gripes appear. The intro was a giant yawn to me. Maybe if, if it had made its appearance earlier in the album, I might have been kinder because I would have just accepted it as something, you know, before actually seeing the stark difference between the two tracks, uh, between an original and a remix. But when they start, when Grimecraft starts dr dramatizing it just a little bit more, like between beats further into the track, or these these swoops rather, it was kind of cool at that point. But something still uh, was lost for me here. The, something in the original piece had been lost in this remix. Yeah, I mean, I'm in total agreement with both of you. I felt like the whole intro of this song was very muddied. And if it were an original composition, which I guess in theory it is, based on the way it was kind of put together, that's, I guess, different, but because I'm expecting something specific from something I'm very familiar with, this is where my bias bites me in the ass. Because I love the original and I'm familiar with the original games, him muddying it up here, while some other people may find refreshing, I just find is unimportant and ancillary. And that's not fair, I suppose, to Grimecraft, but who I'm sure is very talented. It's just, for me, it rubs me the wrong way because I'm expecting some nod to the original, which I don't get till much later, and it's not as full as previous tracks had been. Now, I had checked out of the DK series before we got to DK Country 2. Like, I was already done with Donkey Kong at that moment, but what struck me here, because I really didn't have much in the way of expectations. I knew that if they're drawing from a slow track in a Donkey Kong game, it's going to be a nice, slow, easy track. Here it felt like they were trying I to do <laughs> rise and fall and rise and fall, but nothing ever really seems to hit a height. Another ever really seems to hit the same depth. Like nothing feels dramatic the way I was kind of expecting it. Like even the simple drama of what you get in the original, it was there. It was intense in it, in how simple it was. I, Here, it's sort of leveled out. A lot I of the edges are too smooth. I think it may even be a little simpler than that. I think it's just the, the, the simple fact that the original theme here was not techno-suited. You can't re not everything is remixable, or rather you can, but then you you approach you know the the question of whether it's tasteless or not. Well, yeah, I think it's fair to say that this remix might rub people harshly. I don't want to say that it's tasteless yeah. necessarily. There are also different kind of remixes out yeah, there. Perhaps a different kind true. of remix, uh, a different kind of approach would have suited this. In this case, like you still have a lot of the same cliches as you had earlier on. So may, I, I do feel bad in that I'm, I'm kind of taking out some of my problems with the album as a whole. Like I said, the aesthetic that the album really holds together. Uh, and I'm taking it a little bit out on this track because for the first time I see such a big difference in original to remix. Alright, let's move on to track 7, which is a combination of two songs, but from the same game company. It's Wandering Flame from Final Fantasy X and Secrets of the Forest, which is from Chrono Trigger. Now, um, the important thing to mention here is that there are multiple composers on both of these games, but of course the famous 
Final Fantasy composer who overlaps on both games is the one and only Nobu Omatsu, who yeah. has composed pretty much every Final Fantasy game up until the newest one. Um, is like and an, Chrono a, Trigger. A media celeb. And Chrono Trigger. And Chrono Trigger. Well, I said that. I said in the beginning that this was a Chrono Trigger song as well. So well, that was implied. Okay. I want to go a little bit off on Nobu. He's all, he's He has, for years, probably since Final Fantasy II, which is where I started my gaming experience with the Final Fantasy series, he has been one of my like musical idols as mm-hmm. far as video game music goes. If more people could be like him, because this guy was creating orchestras when all he had was eight bits, yeah, and he was doing it in such a way that the game, and specifically this game, Final Fantasy X or FFX, was the first time there was actual vocals in a Final Fantasy game. It took him I don't know how many iterations of of uh, voiceover specifically yeah voiceovers it's first time they're actually you got people talking so he was doing the job of creating dialogue through music and he was doing a wonderful job so we're talking about one of my favorite composers in the video game scene well I want to compare this to what I started to say earlier about uh, Legend of Zelda and how I like some of the music but I'm not as thrilled with it as clearly everyone else seems to be Um, the Final Fantasy is is different potatoes because Final Fantasy it feels, it always has felt composed like a film, mm. always, from the beginning. And it's obviously when they had access to the fact that you could actually have a full orchestra, then sure, it might as well be a film at that point. I mean, the experience is relatively the same. But yeah, this, interestingly, is really ambient. Even mm-hmm. though I, I, I said that the Donkey Kong kind of leaned toward that way, this really accentuates that, which is why I really have to give Game Chops some credit or whoever was responsible for, for the involvement of the, the placement of these tracks together uh, some points because it goes really, really well together. You know, at least finally we have some semblance of album arc here. You're mm-hmm. not going to get a whole lot of that because, yes, of course, it is a compilation of remixes. How much more can you expect? But there was some, I think, thought uh, given toward the flow of this album you, you have all these high-intensity, you know, rev-you-up kind of tracks in the beginning, and then you start to slow it down a little bit with the Sticker Brush Symphony, and now really quite a bit with Wandering Flame, Secrets of the Forest, which although it's made up of two tracks, let's, let's take them one at a time here. Wandering Flame, of course, that's the one from Final Fantasy X, and the original with the saxophone, I, I, it's beautiful, absolutely beautiful, and so unintentionally, I guess, a natural extension of that Donkey Kong theme to me, and at the end of the day, the real credit has to go toward DJ Cutman, because because he's the one that actually thought to fuse these two themes together, Wandering Flame and Secret of the Forest. This was, this kind of, I mean, maybe it didn't blow my mind as much as it blew your mind, because you probably have a lot more familiarity with both Final Fantasy and Chrono Trigger. To me, it was just, it was uh, musical serendipity. Yeah, for me, it was absolutely mind-blowing, and I would dare say, from a gamer perspective, life-changing, only because these are games that I'm intimately familiar with, though I never finished... Final Fantasy X to completion. I am very familiar with... To the detriment of the game and yourself. Anyway, I screwed up my sphere grids. It's a whole long story. (laughs) Anyway, Final Fantasy X is a game that the soundtrack I'm very familiar with, and I did play through most of the game. Chrono Trigger, however, is my favorite game of all time. I'm intimately familiar with the game from moment to moment, the soundtrack from note to note. I have the three-disc CD version of it. I have the digital version of it. If there were a vinyl version of it, I would own that, too. Well. So... Taking two songs by a composer who I knew worked on both soundtracks and overlapping them, because 
Steve's right. The beginning is Final Fantasy X, and then it's followed by a much lighter, slower version of Secrets of the Forest from Crunchy Girl. And then as the song progresses, they get intertwined and overlapped, and they fit so perfectly together. But I would have never thought to have mixed them together based on the original composition. But when you listen to the originals back-to-back, it almost sounds like they're in the same key. They uh-huh. have very similar qualities in the melody itself, or at least if you play one over the other, they sound like they were just part of the same composition. It's, it's almost intuitive. It just takes someone to, certainly a DJ and a good remix artist, that, that instinct to know what to pick out and what to fuse together. So maybe this just leapt right out to him as an obvious choice. And like I said, I don't want to put track placement down either because I think we were set up for this uh, quite dramatically with, well, at least with the original version of Donkey Kong Country, which the remix here brought in a little bit of. And let's not simply pass this particular track off as an ambient track either. Remember, there still is the techno beat in the background, but I found it considerably more palatable here for some reason. I guess just because the simple melody in Wandering Flame, and I guess also in Chrono Trigger, it's simple as beautiful enough that, I don't know, the techno just didn't really hurt it as much for me. It just felt like a kind of a sparse add-on to something that leaves a lot of room for space. You're, I, I think you're doing it a disservice by saying it's not hurting. Here, I feel like it's actually adding, like dramatically adding to the overall feel well, of what's I'm, going I, on. Well, I did mean what I said, because remember, the nah, listening nah. to the original tracks did accompany this listen, and as okay. a result, I do think those are phenomenal. But it's the blending of the melody. That's the big genius here. I don't think the big genius is the techno element, but it's, it's not as bothersome. I, I, for me, because we're, we, we start with just Wandering Flame, with the vocals just reaching outward and reproducing that saxophone sound. I think it's beautifully marrying the two ideas together, humanizing that note, and then taking that really nice beat flow with some, some, some good reverb on it and contrasting it and adding a, an extra layer to it and putting it in a context that was only done visually earlier because I, I have to call this one out specifically. This is in the video game after the big bad evil guy, Sin, shows up and destroys a town in a town that you were supposed to be emotionally connected to already. It's a devastation piece. That's, a, that's all it's trying to fulfill. At least that's what Wandering Flame's trying to do. It's doing that. It's doing so much of that. But the real genius, yes, I think is when Circuit of the Force and the Really, specifically, the whistle comes in to counterbalance it and to create sort of a, a a spark of hope in what, for me, was already a very depressing piece. It did a lot to really sort of do a summation of a, of a devastating moment that you do get past. And that spark of hope is important to latch on to because Secrets of the Forest is essentially that. You hear it for the first time when you enter the forest after you go back in time to the medieval time period and it's the first time you're there and you're walking on the overworld map and you're in this mysterious place you're not even sure you've gone back in time yet it's a little confusing and it's this idea of hope and you're going back in time to save someone who vanished who you just met and so there's this air of new adventure and I think them being married together from the original pieces emotional and definitely being conveyed in this version of it is really important to mention as well. By the way, I, I may have to correct something here because I may have attributed uh, the the talent to the wrong horse. Remember, Smooth McGroove, I think, did these exact track titles, in which case Smooth McGroove is really the one, I think, who's who responsible married them together. for marrying the melodies. Right, maybe not uh, DJ Cutman, but eh, whatever. <laughs> right. The end result is what we got, we got, and we like it. Yeah, and I think also, going back to my original point I was trying to make, is that 
for me as a lifelong gamer and someone who is as big a fan of, of Nobu as John is, if not more, because I own many a soundtrack, this song is doing what I feel like the whole album in a sense should be doing, whether it's from Smooth and the Groove's genius or the DJ's, but I want to approach this music that I am in love with from a different place. And that's what this track did. It took two songs I'm very familiar with and made me look at them differently and enjoy them in a brand new way. And not enough tracks on this album have done that so far, only a few. You know, I always wince whenever you say song, but th there is Smooth McGroove there. Yeah. So it's not a piece. I yeah. guess it is a song, if he is in fact singing it. I don't know. Well, I just thought I'd raise that point. He's he's vocalizing it, so For I guess sure. yeah. that's so close is, enough, right? Is vocalization singing? I guess it is. It kind right. of is. Um, a song is song. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's move on to track eight on this wonderful compilation we've been enjoying so I've far. Been, <laughs> I've been enjoying it. No, I have to. I, I'll um, say I've been enjoying it. Um, this, is, this song is One Who Bears Fangs at God. That's a great title. And it's from the game Xenogears, which is also Squaresoft. This is not then. an unusual title from Xenogears. Okay, yeah, okay. And uh, Xenogears was a PlayStation game. It was for PlayStation 1. It was very dramatic. And even soap opera elements, it was just one of those stories that's kind of really rooted in the narrative as well as the action and the RPG elements and everything else. And the dystopian atmosphere is right. what makes it really Giant interesting. Giant robots and all of that stuff as well. And of course, before we get too far from it, um, the original composer of this piece was Yasunori Mitsuda. Mm -hmm. And um, he's worked with Square Enix for quite some time and worked on a lot of different games. Our uh, remix artist, Cholo? Cholo? C-H-J-O-L-O. Cholo? Cholo. I'm going to assume it's Cholo, because yeah. that's the only way I can get an, a J in there. That was like, interesting. Sort of. Jolo, yeah. Jolo? It kind of sounds Russian the way you do it, but yeah, that's right. interesting. Um, um, this, this song, like previous tracks that I've really enjoyed, for the most part, stays pretty true to the feel of the original, which I appreciate being a fan of the original game. Well, let me just, I guess, chime in here. I've, I've never heard of the original game, not until now, actually. Not till, I guess this is the first game on the list. The first, all the game period I have never really even heard of. It was, if it was mentioned in my company, I apologize. I don't remember. But the original music, having heard it now, uh, it blew me away. Yeah. Completely blew me away. I'm actually really interested in it. I'm curious to check it out. But the, the thing is, the music was written to be slightly more noir this time. Certainly even more film-oriented than what I said about Final Fantasy. Mm -hmm. uh, but it actually conveys a great deal more. Maybe because Yumatsu was going for a more relaxed RPG atmosphere, and this is just a little bit more tense front to back. Um, but whew, I, I, I guess I enjoyed both versions. Again, I'm always curious about the the, the original version. I want to check that out. Mm -hmm. Like I'm inspired by that. But I guess this remix also inspired me a little bit. The acapella was pretty echoey, and mm -hmm. it sounded very much like the original, having heard it side by side, and the modulation further into this track, as I believe was also in the original, is delectable in both environments. I really don't have a preference. Yeah, I, well, I think as we get further in the console generations, and more and more pieces are composed, and with real actual instruments and not MIDI, there's going to be more overlap and more blend between the sounds, especially if yeah. they're sticking to the original feel. But this, I guess what it, my point is, this piece, this or this particular remix seemed to accomplish more than the last two remixes mm. did. I think because this is the example of something, like for instance, this this is the exact antithesis of what I described in Sticker Brush Symphony. Sticker mm. Brush Symphony, you know, you saw one particular uh, remix route. 
You saw one particular techno approach, and I don't think it was at all suited to the source material. This was completely suited, and I saw a different side of techno in the process. A side that I'm not always accustomed to hearing. You know, we laugh all the time. We've been laughing very frequently, I guess, throughout this album at, at the kinds of vapid techno we're familiar, we're, we're familiar with, but mm. we're a little bit more apologetic of it here because we know it's based on uh, on original material, which is then modified, but this one took a completely different route. So yeah. actually, I'm, I guess the other great success story here is now I'm I'm curious about Xenogears and I'm also curious about Xjolo, whatever his <laughs> name is. I can't say him, but I like him. Yeah, I mean, and I, as someone who's played the game, I would highly recommend that you check it out, Steve. I think you'd really dig it. I was actually in, really impressed by what he was doing with the deep bass and how he was warping and just just screwing with that line in particular. Mm-hmm. Screwing with that low register to be, a, again, a counterpart. And that's what happens with a lot of this stuff. It's just about being a high register, low register, and making sure the two counterparts work together. And that's something that I think is kind of throughout this whole album and might be indicative of early just MIDI-style 8-bit, 16-bit music in general. You don't have much to work with, so you have high, you have low, and you make them work together. Right, of course. But here, that's not the case because this is not the blending uh, between game. the two. Yeah, the blending between the two is much more upfront in the original work, and here it's much more upfront. You're feeling a lot more texture going on. Uh, things like that I usually get annoyed at, like the clap tap. I <laughs> was not getting annoyed at the tribal section that appears right after that clapping gets really heavy the modulations that it's going through the just the the real big thing that moment where it's almost like a choir shows up and just goes grand and that's it <laughs> and we have that moment and then it goes right into the rock like everything seemed to flow through just different ideas of music that all really were saying the same thing of what this piece said from the onset, which was kind of on the epic side. I mean, its title has to be fulfilled, so they did it. Well, yeah, and I think for me also the biggest thing in the plus category for this song for me is it reinforced the childlike awe that the original game gave me. And that's not something that a remix can always convey, as we've discussed previous, and I think it really did here. So, uh... Great original, great remix. Yes. <laughs> Track right. nine, Brinstar Green from Super Metroid. One oh. of the most legendary early video games of all time and video game characters. This is remixed by Blind. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't know. There's something about Super Metroid as a game that, for me, was kind of the next level of detail-related games, and the music had to fit that because it had to fit a specific tone. And the composers who made the music for this game, of course, are Kenji Yamato and Minako Hamano. And these two composers just created an environment in the music. You know, we talk a lot about the songs on this album not necessarily having to fit a certain feeling, but for sure Metroid were were pieces that were very different. They conveyed absolutely how you felt in those moments in that game. Well, I should I should probably have amended my list at the top of the show when I <laughs> said that I had bench side experience on top of the games that I listed in my primary list, and I gave three games that were my bench side experience with games, and those were uh, Battletoads, Metroid, and Mega Man. That's not entirely accurate, because actually two out of the three I did play, and I played a lot. Those were Battletoads and 
Metroid. Mega Man, I actually did not play so much, but I witnessed a good deal of it. Um, but Super Metroid, I am actually very thankful that my uh, old roommate showed me this game, because uh, even though I was playing the emulator version on PC, not actual on Super Nintendo, still, I got to feel the game. I understood the sort of dark chasm-like feel of feeling cut off from everyone, feeling cut off from all help, feeling like the entire game someone is just stalking you, waiting to, to pounce at any moment, and you're trying to work out the problem, make your way out. It's still got heroism, but it's a very different kind of game, and it's a very different kind of music, especially for a game back in that era. I'm not saying there are other games that didn't do this, but Metroid is definitely a, a unique beast from what I understand. And uh, yeah, finally, a game that I have played and experienced and not just sat through, not just heard the music. As a result, though, the music, in this case, I'm a little bit more on your guys' front. Like, I, I know the feel of the music while it's interacting with me, or while I'm interacting with it. So, yeah, as a result, I think this kind of led me to uh, original is better snob material. Like, well, because I, also there were expectations from the minute we started hearing it. Absolutely. We had expectations. We really, really thought this was going to at least preserve some of that darkness. Everything I just said about, you know, one who bears fangs at God showed me a different side of techno. Well, I thought we were going to maintain that a little bit if, if this album has, if its trajectory was of any consequence. But, uh, alas, we seem to be taking a little bit of a step back here. It, it, it has the melody. I want to make that clear. Mm -hmm. The melody is there, but when you have the beat in the background, I don't take it seriously. I don't take it as seriously as the original stuff. I, I, I can't say why. Maybe it's just because I'm all too aware of this other aesthetic in other environments, typically ones that are less serious. Well, it's like adding a bunch of spotlights to Ridley Scott's Alien. And that's what Metroid was. Metroid was one of the first horror games on Nintendo, yeah, on it's like any the of the consoles. Yeah, like if the movie didn't have the filter that made it so dark and gloomy. And there is no filter on this Metroid. There is no there is no pared-down tension building, which was yeah. what was important with the horror genre. And I don't care what you guys want to say. You can send the hint mail to me. All right? I don't I don't give a crap. Metroid was a horror game at its No, core. absolutely. It was. Yeah. There's probably, like, Zero Suit and stuff like that when they finally got rid of the horror elements and just made it a platformer. And, no, and it's always and kept the... No, it always no, kept no. the, uh, the, the horror. The brightness killed it. And that was one of the big things. I disagree. That I disagree. But that's a different horror, discussion. Horror, sci-fi, which... Uh, I wish there was almost more to yeah. that genre. It seems obvious that there should be, but only one good franchise comes around like per decade yeah. in that environment. The Alien is a good comparison. The problem here is that the vocals are actually working against the aesthetic, in my yeah. opinion. Having someone vocalizing it starts to remove the fact that there's aliens, there's monsters, because now the unknown is just some guy. It's just a voice. You can understand voices because that's what they're meant to do. They're meant to convey information. Well, the eerie quality, the, the creep that was just inherent is, is gone. The keyboard that shows up quite a bit, it's very bright, but it's also at odds with all the ideas of what Metroid was trying to put forth. The sweeps that are on top of everything. That was something that was almost distracting. It it works as a techno piece, but I don't really see it working in the aesthetic I think it was actually going for. This is one where I think if I didn't know the source material, I might have enjoyed it more. I openly admit I'm biased here because mm -hmm. Super Metroid is on a pedestal for me, maybe even unfairly, and this doesn't meet those expectations, and that's mostly why I don't like it. And Compositionally, I I it's not a bad track. I think as a techno track, it's not sure. terrible. Sure. It just, for me, didn't hit those 
fundamental buttons I was looking for. And once again, to hammer this point home, even though we've already hammered it home, I can accept the accusation that we are just constantly looking at this album through the lens of comparison, comparison, comparison. We could just take this for what it is and try to turn off the switch. Mentally, I think I could do that. S spiritually, it's difficult, <laughs> but uh, uh, the, the problem I have with that is is just what exactly was the purpose of this track. Yeah, I, think this I, is I don't understand its goal. Right, and I think this album is meant to be steeped in nostalgic, all things considered, so separating it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. Whereas reviewing maybe a soundtrack might might not necessarily be composed in that same way. So it, 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 we're trying to look at this differently, but we're allowing our nostalgia to guide us, but we're at least acknowledging it's it. the only it way we can have an accurate discussion on this. So it's a little bit of a throwback, actually, to our earliest episodes and being a little bit more instinctual with our yeah. approach. But I think it's a valid, uh, a valid approach here. So let's move on to something a little bit more lighthearted on this album. Actually, a series of lighthearted tracks. Track 10, Mute City, featuring uh, Rob KTA. And this is from F-Zero? Correct. And if we're going to talk about nostalgia, F-Zero is an extremely overrated game, and I can't believe everybody's so uh, nostalgic about it. Blah, blah, blah. It had some of the best music on the Super Nintendo. That's, this is, of course... Yeah, actually, that's true, though. <laughs> that's the problem. It's remixed by Micah. M-Y-Micah. Uh, uh, or Micah. That's true. If I'm you don't want to sound like an idiot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, of course, the original composers were Yumiko uh, Kanki and uh, Nato Ishida. Um, yeah, <laughs> I know. Next time I do these. Yeah, but, so I'm uh, really struggling on it, but, but hey, you, I thought to look them up. You did. You did in this case. I didn't think that. And um, But, yeah, so this... This game notoriously had some of the best music on Super Nintendo for one of the most clunky racing games ever made. Yeah, it was a it was great like... concept, and they've refined it over the years, but really Captain Falcon is famous for Smash Brothers and not F-Zero. Well, yeah, and even those lines actually show up in this song itself <laughs> when yeah. he asks us to show him our moves. Yes. Show me your moves! The By the way, in truth, I didn't look up the original composers. I actually abandoned it after I did the first track because <laughs> yeah. I was worried I was going to make a mistake and there would be some gamer out there be like, actually, he yeah. actually did the remix of the that's thing. probably going to happen I anyway. So. so, yeah. Best but, to leave that to the professionals. But this track really does put his best foot forward, and we get almost salsa right away. Maybe even bossa nova. It's, it's, yeah. it's just a great beat. It's an enjoyable beat. It invigorates you. It was... Relatively harmless. The intro was a little bit stagnant, but the part where it gets, you know, crazier later. Then I'm, I'm always at a loss for words to describe these these melodies. I always go back to oh, the climbing part, the climbing part. But you know what? That, that's what I like melodies to do. I guess maybe that's that's another personal bias, just in terms of uh, music. That certainly made its appearance on this podcast. I always like melodies that do that. And so yeah, I I maybe got a little more of this from you guys, maybe because uh, I don't know the original, so in this case I'm sacrificing the bias, I listened to the original, and I think trading out the rock-heavy, you know, Smash Brothers thing, the, the, the guitar solo, the crazy guitar solo, for a keyboard solo in this particular track really, really worked in its favor. I, I adored that section, and of course that's another bias, I'm partial to keyboard, especially keyboard played in that style, and arena rock, conversely, was never really my thing, so eh, actually, yeah, this bias worked in this track's favor. I I had uh, just a couple of issues, even though I like the track as a whole, probably, I don't know, this one's I'm definitely on the fence on, it felt like there was a little bit too much repetition, and one of the elements that kept showing up, the siren tones, the whistling tones, the higher pitch, that was a little bit annoying. It wasn't, it wasn't painful annoying, but it was just something I felt like, 
okay, it's just it's just something that kind of white noises out a lot of other things out. Yeah. A lot of, it smooths out a little bit too much, and it, it decreases the intricacies it, I was noticing. It fit in terms of its climaxes, but there were definitely parts where it stagnated a little bit too long. Yeah, I mean, this was a fairly long track, over five minutes, and it almost finished, felt like, started to feel like it was jamming on itself, like a jam band kind of style thing, yeah. which well, was to its detriment, and also... That, mm, I defend it, and that's weird, because normally that is a bias. I'm almost against, like, constant jams, but I'm against them on an album scale, because albums for the course of 45 sure. minutes need to be a little bit more tight. But for a track, I have a threshold for this, and I think it was nice to see one example of it on this album. I, I would agree if the track hadn't been so long before that. If they had gotten right. to that moment sooner, and All also, right. I... Absolutely disliked the intro to this track. I just, it didn't really grab me. The Bossa Nova style sounding stuff that came and went, I really liked. I okay. thought that was a really cool thing, especially since I can't think of a video game that really feels Bossa Nova, except for maybe Gemini Man's theme from um, Mega Man 3. But beyond that, there's not really a ton that I can refer back to. But again, it just ran a little long for me. I was starting to get a little bored of it by the end. And I think if that jamming moment, that cacophony happened sooner, I might have been more on board with it. Okay, well, I'll, I'll, be, on, I'll be the positive one for a change. It's a, nice, <laughs> it's a nice role for me. Let's go to track 11, Mario Overworld uh, from Super Mario 2. Correct. The U.S. release. <laughs> I, of oh, see, I always question. Question mark. So this Actually, is specifically from the Super Mario Brothers 2 U.S. release. Actually, I will refute that to the end of time, specifically because that wap wap feels like it's from the newest of games. Specifically, that sound is from the new Super Mario Brothers and is in the Overworld 1 theme song. Yes, but it originated in Super Mario Brothers 2, but which I is just... what we're talking about, and that's what this is based on, because that is, while hinted at and built on, this is based on the original composition by Koji Kondo. Welcome back, Koji. Um, and Ben Briggs, by the way, is the, remix, is the artist. remix artist here. And this is a song that's ripe for positivity and jubilation, which uh, Ben Briggs really actually uses to his advantage here. He overclocks the heck out of it. Well, like, I after a while, so. the speed that keeps going, keeps going, it feels like it's actually starting to get just sped up. Almost like it's you're running out of time and about to die sound, which does actually affect the music in, especially the later games, which keep using this theme. This is one of those, like, like true core Super Mario themes after, uh, I don't know, I don't know how many iterations, at least many four years. or five well, he, I could think of. Here's the thing, Super Mario, the entire Mario franchise, has the same carefree thing going for it. There's no pretense of intricate plot. You're yeah. playing a game and you're having fun, and so you get a few smooth McGroove tracks together, make it sound like a barbershop quartet, and then you get Ben Briggs to do just a little bit in the background, and you have basically a consistency of feeling. And I, I thought it lent to it really well, because again, Ben Briggs was really really uh, tasteful in this. He did not overdo it. I yeah. think most of what's going on here really is smooth McGroove. It's a lot of vocalization over those main melodies, and it sounds very, very dense, but you don't have that overbearing beat in the background. Instead, the, the punctuation, the percussiveness is actually more smooth himself. Yeah, it, it lends to the dance feel of this track. I mean, I can almost picture this in like a Fred Astaire movie and him dancing over it, which I think is really great because we haven't really gotten a song I at least could vision someone dancing to. That was a great observation because some of those movie musicals like from the 40s and 50s they get a little bit forgotten because of their unabashed like po post-war exuberance which, right but can you really blame them i mean the music is still phenomenal it's still addicting it's just you have to be in a grand old mood in order to enjoy it and that's 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 super mario eh, but you're also discrediting the other part that's going on when the vocals take a step back and ben 
he tries different things. We get a faux horn rendition of the main theme. We mm-hmm. get an underground version of it, a glitched up version of it. He goes through motions to kind of recontextualize it. And while I appreciate that, I'd like certain ones. Actually, you know what? I probably like them all, but only on the individual scale. And that's something that bothered me here. It went for a while. This track feels like it's a very, very long track because it keeps flopping between A and B primes. Just, okay, it's a new version. Here's the between. It's going to be something different. It's going to be something different. It's going to be something different. And it was a little bit wearing on me because it felt like we were dragging out something that probably could have been summed up a little bit quicker. Well, you're proposing something that may be a flaw in about three quarters of the tracks on this album. Uh, We haven't talked a lot about sectional variants because, yes, there's a lot of a, B, A, B, slight little transitions, trance transitions yeah. in, in the drops. middle. We're, we're yeah, dropping drops, beat drops. It's, it's a lot of that. But I didn't notice it so much here. I mean, if you noticed it, great. But in this particular track, I didn't notice it because overall, the texture of this track is actually one of the most unique compared to the other tracks on the album. I would agree. And also, it continues to further prove that uh, Koji Kondo's original compositions are ripe for playing with and building on, which I think mm-hmm. is really great. And even the next track's no, exe- no exception because um, uh, Kukiri Forest, which is from the Ocarina of Time, is also composed originally by Koji Kondo. And this one is remixed by a veteran on this album already because we've seen him several times. Um, James Landino. Correct. And I think that <laughs> I'm enjoying this repetition of composer and remixer because... It's starting to really work for me. And, I mean, they're taking a song that is also rooted in extreme jubilance. This is one of the first songs you hear in Ocarina of Time after the title screen, pretty yeah, much. Yeah, basically ditto marks. Almost complete ditto marks to what you said and to what the last track did for me. It's the same vein, uh, even though the Zelda franchise does have an intricate plot, as opposed to uh, what I said about Super Mario, uh, this is still a very carefree piece from that franchise, and the remix maintains that. The beat work is cool and Smooth McGroove singing is f- just swell. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know what else to say. I like the glitch nature to it. It, it is a little bit of a skip beat that yeah. goes on there. And that's mm-hmm. that's something that I, I really enjoy, The just the combination of the vocals getting glitched up, the actual synth work getting glitched up, the two of them just together. It does a lot to elongate the payoff for this yeah. track. It takes a while for you to really have the same sort of happy-go-lucky satisfaction that the original had. I like that. It was sort of a delayed satisfaction that really worked to the benefit of what was going on. And it didn't overly extend it, because the original track on the old school soundtrack was only a minute and 50, and this was two, a little over two minutes. So they just elongated it only slightly just to give you that sense, and I really appreciate that. This essentially just builds on the original, like we said about the earlier Zelda tracks that were featured on this record. I think it's a consistency that I really enjoy on this album so far. I actually, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that James Landino is doing the the best remix work here, but I think I'm actually favoring his style of working off the piece and effing it up just a little bit, just enough to really express his own individuality, just yeah. just enough, just, well, yeah. just good enough to I see another artist on top of what was already done. And thinking back on the tracks he's done, I can see the through line of his style, and yeah. I appreciate that, for sure. Ditto. <laughs> Track uh, 13, Secret Gardens from Little Big Planet. So this is the only PS3 game featured here. The last two tracks are from more modern gaming-ish. Technically, uh, technically, the next track is on PS3. 
technically. Well, technically, it's on all consoles, yeah. current and bef- and and generation before. But anyway, this song from Little Big Planet is a curiosity to me, only because so Little Big Planet is the only game on this entire list that I am not intimately familiar with. And because I didn't own a PS3, I own a PS4 now, but I never had a PS3, and this was an exclusive title to that. That's right, this is one of the newest games, I guess, on this entire Besides list. Minecraft, yes. Which but, I think yeah, both yeah. came out around the same time, but here's the thing, specifically. Oh, and before I toss it off to you guys as well, and finish my point, the composers, the original composers for this track, of course, were Kenneth C.M. Young, Matt Clark, and Daniel Pemberton. And, um... Americans. Americans. <laughs> I don't struggle with the American names because I am dumb. You're, anyway. No, you're American. That's true. <laughs> I am. And then we, of course, also have the remixer, Steve. Uh, Tetra Case. Yes. And so, the, the only point I want to make about this is I'm starting to see an issue that I'm faulting on myself because this game, which I'm not as familiar with, and a song, which I'm also not as familiar with, I go, shrug? And that's something that Steve had brought up earlier with some of the stuff that didn't grab him in yeah. the original. So you can see where I'm coming right. from in each and every one but of those. But the bigger problem I have here is the original was nice and didn't really grab me, and the changes they made to it here were curious, but also didn't really grab me. No, so I, this I, track for me was kind of a question mark. I do believe you, you, in this particular case, it's not just the bias. I mean, remember, I've like I said, I was in that position, but I'm in the same exact position here, so it's really no difference for me. But yet, I noticed exactly what you noticed, that the original theme, it's kind of a strange little brassy ditty. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, it's, got, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's still pleasant. Like, it's in the same uh, comfortable vein as Mario Overworld and Kokiri Forest, maybe with not the memorable themes to go with it, though. It's kind of just a, a backgroundy thing. But um, the remix... Interestingly, turned that brassy theme into something that was 8-bit, which is sort of like the reverse. Right, Usually yeah. you get the opposite, mm-hmm. and they, you know, do another instrument. They, they they take the 8-bit, and they make it into something acoustic, but that's not what's going on here. But that doesn't mean that it's inherently different. It's still as carefree as the original and as the last two tracks. And i got to be a little bit honest. This is a little bit of a problem for me in terms of track placement at this point. I get it. They want to hammer home the carefree, like, mm-hmm. menu-y stuff. But this whole album had only just barely, you know, dived into a little bit of a black hole when yeah. we went into the ambient tracks. We had like two tracks. Two was maybe three were a little bit brooding mm-hmm. and not even so much. This is a 14 track album. So really, it's like a shallow uh, reflection of what we experienced last week where we got like, you know, comedy tracks up front. Then we started talking about really serious subjects, and then yeah. we kind of tried to make it lighthearted at the end, but we never really did. It was almost a a, a two-thirds and a third. This, uh, we barely stepped there. I don't, I don't know. I don't get it. I, I, I think that the forever track nature of it, the end credit nature of it, the sort of thing that you kind of, like, just, you can wait for forever on this track because everything is so spaced out. Everything is so... I guess space oriented, like physically space up up there, because everything has got a little bit of a hollow twinge to it. Everything is a little bit, a little bit, uh, just soft around the edges in in that echo kind of a space. Even if there is no echo going on there, you don't actually mean space space, do you? I mean space space. You I mean, mean space, like space? I mean like I don't feel that. Looking at stars at moments there, it, it feels like we're going <laughs> through straight up pan ups to looking at the stars, and then there's a meteorite that goes. And you're done. That kind of a thing. I wouldn't feel much of anything in space for very long. Well, but uh, to to 
piggyback on what John's saying, though, I mean, when you have a game where the lead character is called Sackboy and he's got a little bit of fluff and <laughs> cotton coming out of his head, and you know, it's a world that's based in like physical materials, it looks like, and right. it's an action platformer. Those things kind of make sense to me. I think my realism big- is d- desired for those situations. Right. I think my biggest issue with this track is not actually how it was. I think it's a big question mark for me because it just seemed curious to make this also a five-minute-plus track. I felt like it conveyed itself and showed all its cards within the first few minutes, and then it was just repeating itself. You know what? This particular selection, uh, I know, because I, th- I think what you're also getting at is it's a strange choice. Yes. Why Little Big Planet? Why the music from Little Big Planet? When you had all, for the most part, older generation games before that. Which is why I was saying I don't think this particular soundtrack is any. Uh, more or less eclectic than the list of games that I said I grew up with. Sure, of course. You know, yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. it's just something they're interested in. This yeah, is what's yeah. in their library. And I mean, as game far shops as the, was curious about. As far as the three-track pattern, and even the fourth track of of eleven through fourteen, which we'll get we'll get to fourteen in a minute, all consistently have an air of joy or relaxation or calm, and so. Yeah. To finish out an album like that on a grander scale, I feel like it's not a bad idea. And it adds a sense of arc, but I just, this track I didn't feel as much as previous. But I do have to say that I am in the same place in this track that you were back on track 10, uh, the Mute City. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I think this one went on too long. Yeah. I was forgiving of Mute City, but this one I, I did not see very many uh, saving graces. There was eight bars of this, eight bars of that, and it definitely, definitely went on too long. Sometimes it wasn't just eight. Sometimes it was 16. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. I was just 24 bars. On and on and on and, and on and on. Very little variance. Yeah. Now, maybe one, it was just because they did not, this time, maybe the problem was the source material. But then, of course, in turn, the problem is the selection of the source well, material. Also, well, the source material, but then also, I'm not sure how long the smooth McGroove version of the track is either. True. We, we, we did not it. listen to each and every one of the, we didn't, we didn't Origi- pick the middle marker. We yeah. went either to the beginning, the, the original, or we went, or, or we went to, well, obviously, what we have in the album. We did not listen to smooth McGroove's versions. Uh, well, because not in every ultimately, case. as far as, uh, um, rating the album, they're almost irrelevant because these are different versions, and if they were changed completely or not, we're rating this version, not the Smooth McGroove yeah. version. You can infer a lot from yeah, the Smooth McGroove, sure. McGroove version from these. But let's move on to the final track of this album, which is track 14, Sweden, which of course is the song from Minecraft. Or the piece from Minecraft. Well, the song here. <laughs> right, fair <laughs> enough. Uh, my wires are all crossed. But there you go. this is um, originally composed by uh, Daniel Rosenfeld, also known as C418. Not C418. C418. He, he insists upon that C- pronunciation. Oh, okay. Well, and, um, and of course the remix is done by Grimecraft, who appeared earlier. And this is the first track I can flat out to start off on a negative place, and you guys can lift us back out. I did not like this track. I love, love, love the original Minecraft composition, and I did not like what this version kind of became. I felt like it lost everything the original piece had. Well, you started off at a, at a negative place, but we ended in a negative place, and that's different when you consider the last four tracks. <laughs> Only because of you, I know that's a yeah, stupid yeah, no, way to no, say it, but it's fine. the point is, like, Sweden, all right, this is the track that actually does have a extreme source of, what to me, well, this is where you may differ. To me, I see the original Sweden, the pure piano version of it, as just... Ah, it's it's not carefree to me. It is peaceful, 
but of course, because of the course of Minecraft, you're just building things, you don't really have a goal, it's not win, it's not be heroic necessarily, it is a little bit of just do things for the sake of doing them, which is why I equated it to almost a sense of ennui. You just hear this piano music in the background, which actually has like real French impressionist leanings, which, you know, maybe is part of my, my consideration in that word choice, but it really is present here. Uh, it's just that I did not think it carried over very well to the remix. Well, okay, uh, two things to remember about the original, regardless of the fact that Minecraft is actually a very modern game, at least compared to most of everything else that's here, uh, specifically, there was some severe constraints on what the sound could do compared to modern games. So when Rosenfeld was creating this specific piece for Minecraft, he was he had to get inventive. <laughs> Secondly, this piece is not just like the music or anything like that, because of the way it waxes and wanes in Minecraft itself, Ennui works. No, yeah. I would agree, actually. It's it's hard to argue otherwise. This version, Grimecraft's version, I think actually is not great, but good throughout because I think it builds upon that. It builds upon that sense of All right, actually, sort of peacefulness, but yeah. it adds the, the the nighttime level of it. The original piece of Sweden works very well when you're just walking around the overworld going dunk as you hit a tree with your fist and break it apart. Here, this is more the zombies are showing up. The creepers are showing up. The essentially bad guys of the game, but really, honestly, if you take very little precaution, they're not evil or bad. They're just kind of there. It's sort of like wildlife that's just kind of dangerous. It's still darker, it's still threatening, and this track is still eerie, a little bit more aggressive, darker, threatening, but still not really in your face. It worked very well to get that mentality going. Yeah, it added interesting little things. It added a little bit more substance, well, I don't want to say substance, but it added detail. Whereas I do believe the original work conveyed a lot in pure feeling. Yeah, I think that's where... I struggle the most here is the feeling is disparate between the yeah. two. And this is absolutely my bias for loving the original material getting in the way. Like, I openly admit that. As an original piece, if I couldn't, if I had never heard Sweden before, I might even like this. I'd agree with that 100%. Yeah. I, I think, think it's because is... I'm painting this with my, not even nostalgia, because this is a contemporary game. Yeah. I think it's just my bias that's really painting this. Yeah. And and I'm I'm okay with that because this is an album that's full of bias and leaning toward nostalgia. And as we find a way to wrap up our discussion here on the record, I, you know, I, this is the first time I kind of really engaged in those demons, as it were. You know, because we try and avoid that. We try and be you know above the art and just kind of look at it. We try not to say they did it better or right. there was this right. was better. We try not to make. Direct we don't want to be those guys who went, oh, it sucks because yeah. it stinks. We were it's maybe like... a little more he more heavy-handed in our preferences in this yeah. piece, but that's because when you're multiplying this really effectively the same work of art and in many different forms, it's like, how could you help but be a little picky about yeah. that? You know, if it's something you love or hate, I mean, then if you hate it, then it's, it's, a, it's a non entity in right. many ways. So, uh, as John mentioned at the top of the show, we're not actually giving this a hard rating, but I want to bring back something that I used to do and then gave up on because I couldn't remember, um, with albums as like a summation. And it's, I think we should all kind of, with our wrap up and final statements, discuss whether we would, you know, ignore this in the future listen to it in the future, buy it in the future, 
or buy and recommend it in the future. I think yeah. it's a good scale. That was that was very close to your original scale. I, yeah. I feel like it's it's tweaked slightly. Um, we may tweak it again, but right. uh, I, I yeah, there was a very fair. there was a very brief period of the podcast in which you recommended that, and we did have that as sort of a secondary album rating system alongside our traditional numbers. Sort of a more digestible yeah. version of the rating system, so you can just get a quick reference. So I do think it's relevant, yeah, that in cases where we don't feel it's appropriate to stack up an album next to our other or completely original works, which is what we base the number system on primarily, and we try to keep it to that, that we should at least have some kind of honorary mention and not just sort of sum this up as being like, I liked it, or maybe not so much. We yeah. should be a little more specific and, and firm with what we felt, what was our takeaway. And I think that's a good approach because, well, isn't that it? That that would be what a real review show does at the end of the day. And, you know, in many we ways... Like to think we are one of those. Well, only secondarily. Yeah. Only secondarily. We like the analysis first and foremost, but it's true there is a little bit less analysis today and a little bit more review because we're just dealing with something that is so fundamentally close to you know is this your bag or not yeah and um i i wrestled with that quite a bit on this album and i guess i'll go first into our wrap up here as i approach that uh, very new rating system or i guess our new old rating system hmm uh you got to go back to everything I said in the beginning. It's why I had the intro that I did. You have to appreciate video games. You have to appreciate video game music. You have to appreciate um, YouTube fan art. And you have to appreciate remixes. That's a lot of criteria. In many ways, there was really less criteria uh, when we talked about Popstar at the end of the year. Yeah, you know, true. Popstar was another kind of situation that I when I was... Coming to the end of it, and I was like, well, what's my takeaway here? I had to consider, well, is this for me? And it was for me in some ways, and it wasn't for me in other ways. I like, I knew what I would recommend it to people for. I knew the type of person I would recommend that mm -hmm. movie to. And I knew people who absolutely would have no interest in a, a, a flavor of the year comedy. Um, I did think that movie did a little bit more than flavor of the year, but... <laughs> is this album a flavor of the whatever? I don't know what remix artists, how generation. they... Generation. We're going to go with generation. Generation. Well, yeah, actually considering that a lot of these uh, themes are taken from a certain generation of gaming, but even then, there are exceptions to that too. It's more like an ode to gaming itself. But that's what Smooth McGroove was doing. But what about these guys? Uh, let me try to stick to the end product here. We looked at a bunch of remixes that have very, very similar approaches, albeit not identical, and yet it's strange because we actually have a very eclectic group of artists, of remix artists, but maybe it's that they're all funneled through kind of a similar style because they're working with uh, similar source material. I understand the tracks are different, but they're all working with games that I guess constrain their artistic uh, drives in a certain way, if that makes any sense. I assume also being techno artists, and techno I guess is how I would consider the vast majority of this album, that maybe also they, their inspirations there have kind of channeled them in the same department. So that has benefit in that there was a lot of consistency here. There wasn't a lot of, it, it was not a compilation, even though you'd think from all those crazy sources this would end up being more of a compilation. It has a pretty consistent sound. And so that begs the question, is it too consistent? I think I had a lot of those problems as I went through this album. A lot of tracks, just from one to the other, I felt a lot of the techno cliches, and I didn't really see any reason for it. Because again, you're dealing with very original work, and work that very often had nothing to do with techno. The, the closest comparison is a little bit of the electronic music comparison, as you'd find in 8-bit, 16-bit. But uh, techno, trance, these are very different uh, genres. And I don't... 
I guess I never really understood the purpose of those kinds of tracks in any other setting than the the club. <laughs> like, a lot of these tracks could be used in that environment, in which case, the people who are in on the joke, well, if you consider it a joke, it's, it's, it's serious music that they're creating, of course, but if there's people there who recognize, be like, oh, hey, look at that, it's the, it's the Dark World theme, it's the Chemical Plant Zone theme, then they'll be saying, I guess, whatever their heart tells them <laughs> based on their experience or lack of experience with the game. Or if it's a black experience, they'd never know. Uh, that's... To go toward your original list, which was, you ignore the album, you flat out ignore it, it's not even on your radar, you know, you barely forgot that you listened to it. Or listen to it where, yeah, sure, you'll listen and you'll maybe go back to it occasionally, but it's just not high up on your list. Buy it, which I guess assumes that you love it, especially these days, you know, you have so much media that you can stream that to buy an album really does mean you adore it. You adore the artist, you wish to support them in all of their endeavors. And finally, buy and recommend, in which case, you're the guy who doesn't shut up about it. <laughs> that that That's top tier of your list. Which, I think it's important to mention now, I just remembered that your old criteria was ignore it, listen to it, buy it, burn it. But then we realized that burn it is actually kind of a pun. Because pun, burn would either be the beginning of the list, where it's even worse than ignore, because you're actually burning the music because you hate it so much, or burn it, meaning that it's kind of a synonym for buy, share, and recommend, right? Because right. that's how people share music, or used to. <sighs> Interestingly, it's at the top of the list, but only half of it, because it's a recommend. Yeah. Like, it's kind of like, I will pass this off to the people who I know are into this thing. I do know some people who are into remixes. I definitely know people who are into uh, video game music, but not even all of them. Because remember, the people who are really into the video games, maybe even the ones in question here, they may not like a remix like this. They may right. see it as kind of a shallow reduction of the work. It may not make any sense to them. I would push the certain tracks that I feel do enhance the work. Uh, so it's... It's like one quarter of your buy, share, and recommend criteria. I would not buy this. I don't think I would listen to it. I wouldn't ignore it. And I would recommend specific tracks to specific people who fit all of those criteria. It's just, it's too specific of work, so it has to be that specific of a, of a, a rating. Okay. Um, I promise not to be that wordy, so... You're welcome. Hey, this. I went first, all right? I got it all out of the way. <laughs> That's true. Um, did I know what he said? And no, I'm just kidding. Um, you know, as a lifelong video game player and a person who's often been obsessed with video game soundtracks, th this hits to a very particular place for me. It's why I openly admitted that a lot of this stems out of nostalgia or just plain out, flat out bias to some of those songs. Um, you know... I think all the DJs here are doing something interesting. I love Smooth Nick Groove's stuff on his YouTube channel. I've been a fan of his stuff for a while, though I could, I sometimes would come across it and not even realize it was him, just because I'm more focused on the presentation and the listening of it than the actual name of the person doing it. But, you know, at the end of the day, this is a compilation of stuff, and I like the majority of it, but there are a couple of tracks I probably wouldn't listen to. That said, like, I am in, later this year in April, and I was going to announce this at the top of the show, but I forgot, I am the official DJ of Nerdlesque Fest 2017 in New York City in April, and I DJ both shows over the weekend and um, classes during the day at Beauty Bar, and I often create a custom nerdy playlist, which consists of video game music, you know, theme songs, all sorts of stuff. I would definitely grab a couple of these tracks for the pre- and post-show playlists of those burlesque shows because they'd be great for people to mingle and dance to. And I think 
that's the strength of a lot of these songs. Um, whether it's the joyous ones towards the end, whether it's the um, kind of techno-y ones towards the beginning, either way. And so, for me, this comes down to, it's more than a listen. This would be, this is somewhere in between listen and buy. Because I don't know that I would definitely buy the whole album, but if I could buy individual tracks on Bandcamp, I probably would. Um, just to support the artist, because I think at the end of the day, both Smooth and the Groove and a bunch of these DJs are extreme talents. Uh, for the majority, I would say pretty much all these DJs, even if I didn't like their tracks, I totally acknowledge the talent they have doing the work they do. Um, so I'm also kind of some somewhere in a similar mindset that Steve is. You know, I'm somewhere between listen and buy, but I don't know that I would buy everything. I'll definitely go back to listen to this, though. Um, as far as recommending it, I wouldn't really, because odds are if you're a big gamer, you probably heard of it already. And if you're not, you're not going to really get much from it. So for me to recommend this, it's on a person-to-person -person level, not an overall I'll share on my Facebook wall. Hey, guys, check this out. You know, I share it to the video game group I'm in on Facebook. So for me, that's not really considered a recommend. To me, a recommend is you recommend it to everybody. Flat out, this is something worth listening to. I don't to. know if I recommend anything to everyone, though. Uh, uh, there are some things. Yeah, there are funny There things. are things that I may not shut up about but I also would know the audience well, it's that not, I'm in. It's not recommending to everyone like everyone you've ever known. It's recommending to an open audience. Like you're not, you're not catering. Like Progger, I would recommend to an open audience. All right, that's true. There's a lot of really uh, cool stuff for a lot of people. There are people out there who don't like jazz fusion in any form, though, so. Sure. You never know. But, but it's more of just an open-ended recommendation, not necessarily a recommendation to everyone, which okay. is what I'm going for here. Um, so that's where I kind of fall with this. All in all, I do like it, and I will go back to it. I mm, I want a lot more of stuff like this, not just in this specific vein, not just through these particular artists, but I love the remix community. I love just video game scores. I yeah. love video game music with and without the actual playing of the video game involved. Mm -hmm. Some music I just enjoy because it was designed for the specific aesthetic of being a fighting game, and I hate fighting games. I still enjoy their music specifically yeah. because of what it usually does. So here, I felt like they did what the video gaming music usually does and in most cases went further. So for that, I'd buy it. It would be just a straight-up buy, and it actually is going to be a straight-up buy. Um, not for, for the reasons of trying to you know give money back to the community that created remix music like this, but also because of today's topic and i'm um, look at this i'm actually doing a segue that works uh, <laughs> for once today we're going to talk about the main reason i actually brought this particular sound on game chops the producing studio slash website that you know created this music does it in a very curious way and they do it through another website called louder fm l-o-u-d-r dot fm Louder FM and Game Chops actually works with the Creative Commons form of uh, copywriting or copylefting, as it's actually known by most of its detractors. <laughs> <laughs> In creating music that once you buy it, not only do you actually own it, you own it to the extent of as long as you say where it's coming from, as long as you say... This is the remixer, this is the publisher, this is the composer. As long as you give credit where credit is due, you can actually make money off of it. And that's one of the most unique things about companies like Louder and Game Chops. In that, 
when you usually purchase stuff through iTunes, when you usually purchase stuff from wherever you get your music from, whether it's the physical CDs or whether it's through uh, Spotify or whether it's through iTunes, you're not buying it. You're licensing it. You don't get to do whatever you want to it. It's not a toaster or a blender <laughs> or something like that. It's not a physical object, even if you have a physical CD. It is only a rental agreement. A rental agreement that for the most part means that you get to own it for the rest of your life unless the people who have the actual IP control get to change. Yeah. With Creative Commons and what Creative Commons has been trying to do for the last 16 years, I believe, 2001 was where they were first created, is not just for music but for art in general, create a system that allows people to actually buy something, buy something artistic, which they can then manipulate in any way and actually propel further monetarily, not just through covers and everything like that where you have to put a disclaimer and not make any money on YouTube, but actually make money monetarily. Yeah, this is a huge thing that's been a big part of electronic music in general. I mean, years ago too, Trent Reznor and Nine Schnells often did that. He would release the instrumentals of his albums and go, I want to make a remix album. Wow me. And then you would get credit. It would become your song. Um, and I think it's really powerful, especially for creating art in a remix community or a mashup community. I mean, mashups are huge now. They're not even just audio. You know, there are ima you know image mashups where you'll put like Mario and a Ninja Turtle and the same thing. You know, Mashups and combining things that previously existed independently is huge now, especially with the technology we have. And I think Creative Commons is a great way to allow these artists to make something that they consider an original work of their own, borrowing from other sources and directly not having to spell out what their influences are. Because if you're using Smooth McGroove and you're making a song about F-Zero, then Smooth McGroove and F-Zero are your inspirations. Like, we get it. Those are your influences. Mm. That's where it's coming from. Well, and I think that's really kind of face value self-apparent, which is really great. I think there's also, there's got to be a little bit of marketing in there as sure. well. I mean, just by putting your, your song up for, to Creative Commons, you, you create a situation in which, well, if someone takes it and does what they will... You kind of end up with what I experienced on this album is that there's a bunch of tracks where, all right, maybe the person who remixed it didn't sell me. Maybe in each and every instance, Smooth McGroove didn't even sell me. But I went back to the original material, yeah. and it was a pretty damn good advertisement for them. Yeah. I think there are a couple games in here which I would like to try in the future. There's certainly some soundtracks that I would try listening to, if, if not the former. Yeah, and I think that... It's it's a powerful, I would agree, it's a powerful marketing tool also because of those three steps and also because you're linked in a modern linkable culture, you're linking back to all those things. I mean, on Spotify for this album, which you can click through on the playlist if you're listening on the website, you can click through Wikipedia style to all of the DJs, to all of, to Smooth McGroove, to Game Chops, and that's really great too because then you can go down the wormhole of all this stuff that's interconnected. Think of all the uses that each and every one of these remixes would have. Yeah. They could be used as theme intros to, you know, radio broadcasts, podcasts alike. Like, and then you recognize the theme in the distance and you, the same marketing tool is achieved. And yeah. you, you've advertised all of the above now. The yeah. entire tree of people who had a hand in that work. But what this really does is actually provide a 
a, a relatively new phenomena in culture, an outlet for all the problems that it's also generating. Um, one of the biggest platforms for media exposure and enjoyment these days, after places like YouTube, is actually Twitch. The big issue with Twitch is while you are allowed to be playing a video game, it's essentially an expression of the piece of the video game itself. So it's not just, you know, reproducing the video game and getting into trouble that way. You're right. allowed to make money this way. Well, you still can't play any of the music. That, because it's always uh, under a separate license, means most of your playthroughs of almost every video game you can come up with, you can't play the music. Or at least you can get into a lot of trouble if you do, if the company chooses to pursue that. It depends on the game. It depends on the company. But yeah, even um, streamers on YouTube who do Let's Plays have run into that trouble. Markiplier has run into that problem where a Flash game will feature an actual song by Metallica and he has to put in other music because otherwise Metall- he wouldn't be able to advertise and make money off that video because Metallica because not even Metallica as we talked about with Dan Bull last week very little YouTube now sometimes just pulls that shit down for no reason right like Actually, it's I- not even Metallica attacking you it's YouTube on behalf of Metallica assuming they're going to and and not letting you get revenue Actually I was watching a uh, it was Soviet Womble who is a coarse individual but his gameplay videos are pretty funny and one of his older pieces actually had a flag and they removed everything even though there wasn't actually any music mm-hmm. YouTube flagged it for I can't really tell what reason and there's no audio it's a yeah. 7 minute thing no audio don't know why it's something I was actually re-watching but these things happen so when you actually are using Creative Commons music or the music that falls under one of the six or so different licensed blankets that Creative Commons use, you get to actually do more art on top of art. Mm-hmm. And this is a cool concept because of it's how... Artception. Well, it's uh. also because of how stringent just music and art and video footage and all this sort of things has been historically. Yeah. You're very rarely going to find remixes of Disney pieces or Disney pieces in general, musically at least, under Creative Commons because, well, that's a cash cow. That's something that they can just keep making money off of, money off of. And I'm not going to begrudge them that. I think it it really went full circle. I mean, historically, it would have been the kind of thing that's pretty tough to keep tabs on until it suddenly became a little bit easier to keep tabs on. A quick Google search. Yeah. But and I'm not going to begrudge like Disney locking down on their particular items. I'm not going to say, okay, no, Snow White's been around for forever. I should be able to make money off of singing one of its songs. No, no, no. That's not neither here nor there. But it does curtail what people can do with their own particular talents. Whether it's an animator who is a little bit too close to a specific style of animation, oh, yeah. or someone who's making an homage to a famous movie or television show and gets it flagged and pulled down off of various social medias because it's a little bit too close to the original material, or someone who writes music and it just so happens that it's the same dun 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 No, that was just blatant rip-off. That was a blatant rip-off. But at the same... Ice's defense was weak. But this is the You know, I'm sure his defense was weak, but when you consider the instances in which it's been done since, you know, everyone likes to promote that as being blatant plagiarism. Sure. 
so much sampling has been done since that it's like, really, really? Are we going to get that angry over this one instance? Right. Especially considering who the hell knows? You know, it's actually almost an intuitive... Some things actually are coincidence in the world. I don't know if that one really is. But that some one... things are. Especially when you're talking about music that's... When we're using the same exact tools, when you're using right. the same instruments, you're using I, the I same 12-note system. I would say with Vanilla Ice, it's... If it's coincidence, he's an idiot. Like, if it's coincidence, then people who work with him are idiots because they should have done some semblance of research. It's not like it wasn't a famous song. Uh, I, I don't know if I agree with that assessment. I, if it's a coincidence, I do not believe... I don't believe artistic ignorance is is idiocy. I guess, but ignorance is no excuse for making those kinds of mistakes either. I feel like when you have the tools to find out that information. Anyway, we're getting a little bit no, sidetracked. No, it's not. But you're going to find worse as you go back through time and sure. people were genuinely cut off from Going each other. back to Creative Commons, though, I'm in agreement with John completely. I think it's also, to me, a remix culture, I feel like is almost... A separate genre. I mean, it is a separate genre of music, almost. But in the same way that prog is, where there's a host genre that, like, it's building off of, but it's also its own thing. Things that are remixed have a distinct feel to things that are just a techno song. Well, it's mm. not just the remix culture. There's a lot of stuff that is a hundred percent original, or as original as you can be, as drawing from the ether and trying to make music right. or artwork or anything like that. That is still going to be covered under one of the various. Creative Commons license agreements, which mm -hmm. I have to reiterate, they're not actually just copyright agreements. They're yeah. built upon, and it sure. basically says that where we differ, it becomes the ipso facto rule. Right. So when we have it in there that you can, you know, remix to your heart's delight, you're allowed to do that, even though it says in normal copyright law. No, you're not allowed right. to do this. I think it's sort of recording the program and then showing it to somebody else that the NFL is always harping you on <laughs> for all that sort of stuff. But it actually is that sort of a thing. It allows you it, – it, it's, it's doing a lot to actually counteract a lot of the problems that we're seeing creep up in the internet, which is – just the simple stuff, which is YouTube flagging left, right, and center, yeah. which luckily has calmed down quite a bit, but has been an issue on and off. Or even Facebook has done a little yeah. bit of stuff like oh, that. Yeah. Okay, sure. so I understand or, that Creative or, Commons gives you the, the... Honestly, it almost seems like a legal out. That's the way you're explaining it in many ways. A legal out for what would, under worse circumstances, be called plagiarism. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But it's specifically by individuals the licensors that yes. are allowing this the to be plagiarized. Deal, right. The handshake deal, the agreement. Yeah. Uh -huh. you, yeah, here you go, course. go for it, plagiarize it. They're actually trying to contribute to art. That's where, that's where this is, to me, the most fascinating and probably the best part of the entire thing. They are, yeah, doing original work and remix work and stuff in between. One of my favorite authors publishes all of his stuff under Creative Commons, usually about a month after his book comes out. Right. Corey Doctorow. I, would, I harp on this guy. I love this guy's work. He does it because he, yeah, he wants to make some money. That's why it usually takes a month or two. Yeah. But he also wants people to understand what he's trying to tell them. So he wants to, the biggest variety of people to read his work. So he lets it be free to so many people who can the find it. The people who are having most of the success these days seem to be people who, who embrace this culture. Right. It reminds me of the time, like back in the day, uh, the heyday of System of a Down. Right before they disbanded, they released an album called Steal This Album. And the, yeah. the it had no box art. It was a clear case with 
a, 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 a CD that looked like a CDR, but wasn't. It was clearly printed. Right. But And, and they said that they, they didn't want people buying this album. They wanted people to steal this album online. They wanted people to just hear this music because it was odds and ends. It was, you know, really rough cuts. It was all sorts of really cool and aggressive tracks. And, like... That kind of mentality, or like uh, Radiohead releasing their album for free, and you could pay what you want. Like these are all things that have led towards this direction, and I think it's a great way for music and even art in general to eventually move towards. People need to make money, but I think sharing your art with as many people as possible is also really important. It's also I think. It's, well, I just want to point out. I said that last week when yeah. I was talking about you know Dan Bull that mm -hmm. that when we we're talking about file sharing. Today, it's more advantageous, I think, if you get, if you at least have some sympathy with that that thing, that pastime you shouldn't yeah. speak of, but, like, you should have some sympathy with because that's how a lot of people find music when they're in, like, their teens, early 20-somethings, and they're broke. Yeah. And if you get them then, then ideally, ideally, there will be return. There will yeah. be return in the future. That's when you've cultivated the taste in somebody who will now follow you for life. I think that's the way it usually works. There's also one final little thing, and it's mostly because I am a proponent of net neutrality and believe wholeheartedly in the concept of net neutrality, but this is an issue that shows up in the U.S. government, yeah. the Chinese government, the U.N. Like, this is a yeah. global issue. And the idea behind, you know, some rights reserved instead of all rights reserved yeah, yeah, yeah. is a great way of trying to keep the net neutral is right. trying to keep information as free as it can be well because at the end of the day you want to be effective in sharing what you feel and if we start charging various prices for various parts of the internet then if you don't pay for those services the internet could slow you down because you're not paying for that service. Or you know so what it on. is? I've come full circle on this because artists, at the end of the day, artistry is always a gamble. Yeah. It's it's more of a gamble than anything else. There's no guarantee the second you go into art, it's are you going to be liked or are you not? People, you only get rich, you know, by the virtue of people who are nice. That's it. That's the only reason. There's, there's no there's no like handshake deal that was done there beforehand between right. artist and consumer. Mm -hmm. If they like what you're doing, then that's that'll get you places in the future. That's sure. it. You can't. Well, that's why I always can't legislate that. I always talking back about bringing it back to marketing as we're, we're wrapping up on this. Like, I feel like word of mouth and handing a business card will always be stronger than sharing stuff online because it's yeah. it, there's well, a, there's an in-person imprint to it. Yeah, there's it, Facebook is a little bit kind of desensitized. Well, and that's what Creative Commons at the end of the day reminds me of when, when, when uh, it's sort of the Wikipedia of art. Well, that's yeah, but so yeah. for example, when uh, Grimecraft is taking something by uh, Smooth McGroove and then remixing it himself, but that thing is from something else. Every time someone touches it, they live their imprint on it, and it makes it more personal. And I, at the end of the day, I think that's really important for all art, especially music here. And the way the licensing works is, like I said, Wikipedia. You have to be verified, a, a, a.k.a. you have to buy the license. But then at that point, you get to manipulate it. You get to add your own levels. Maybe somebody missed a point on a specific song that you felt should be reiterated. That should be darker. You can change that, that tiny little bit. And that's, a, that's your contribution. Half a bar, maybe. Throw it in there, now it's a new, unique piece that means something subtly different. But it adds to the overall experience of it itself. All right, I don't know if I um, agree with this or not. That's, I, not, I that's should, not the new no, one. No, no, I will no, point out no, that I'm, is I'm not the a different thought. I'm a different okay. thought. The, diff the new thought here is just to play devil's advocate. Can that run the risk of making people spoiled? 
And I don't mean just spoiled in terms that you can, you know, acquire anything through Creative Commons, but even the people who acquire things through Creative Commons and they do their thing, however different it is, can you lose the original artist in the mix? Can you get no. to, can you get to a point, and this is important, because can you get to a point where when we search those things on YouTube, you know, we arrive at the screw, uh, I was going to call them Screws McGroove, yeah. <laughs> Smooth McGroove remixes before we arrive at the original themes because they're more popular. The remixes are more, his remixes are more popular. It's, I don't know if these Game Chops remixes will be more it's popular. It's not than necessarily that. that it's more popular. It's just it has more views on YouTube because the original song was people listening to streaming yeah, or something. That, else. That's an extreme example because, of course, it's silly. Anyone who actually sees his videos, they'll see the game happening right there before their eyes. They're going to know it was original. Well, the, that there was an original. There, there, there's a very specific thing that is associated with Creative Commons, or group of things. One, you always have to give credit to the original composer. And two, and most importantly, yeah. you have to give credit to everybody that goes in between. There, you, if you don't do that, you're breaking the law. And when you're breaking the law, yes, you are breaking the purpose of what Creative Commons is doing. What, you know, CC licensing is doing at its core, which is expanding upon other people's art and other people's ideas. It's meant to be a communal effort to go forward. Yeah, and it I relies think, on trust a little bit. And that trust is easy to verify. Yeah. That's the whole thing. I'm you more can talking still about, keep doing this. I'm more talking about the reaction that the public will have to it, because the public can be a little stupid. They cannot know, perhaps, what who was doing what. They can see, you know, sure, you can reference the who did the original work, but it's like sometimes that will get lost in the fine print of of the work. And, and how many people will go, dun, 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 dun. oh yeah, that one that's all like like war and something like that. What's that song? No, it's Right of the Valkyries by Wagner as performed by such and such. I mean, you can you can do yeah. this. That's something that is an inevitability. Yeah. You will lose touch with the original piece of art as you go along. It's just gonna happen. Bach, Beethoven, Mozart, we remember these names, but Unless you're a student of the classicals, you will hear them pop up and you'll be like, oh, okay, that's classical music and that's about all I can do. And that's me. I, I can go, oh, that's classical music. I don't know who it is. That's I don't easy, know what it's that's called. That's easy for you to say being a little bit of removed from that as your, as your background tastes. But then when you start, think about things that you adore and that you love and you, if you consider that happening to them in the distant future, you might have a harder time accepting that. Well, no, it... I, it's not that I'm having a harder time accepting it. I know it's an inevitability. I don't want it to happen. And with today's... Well, that's all the laws ever but, try to do is maintain some semblance of posterity. That's all they do. And mm, it, it can seem a little strict, but it's not like... that's that, uh, The law does make sense in, it, in its original form. Yeah, but that's the whole thing. It's not replacing the law. It's supplementing it. It's giving... Yeah, it's an addendum. It's an addendum that allows it to be used freely without the same level of repercussions. And people who produce it and own the licenses are choosing to allow this addendum. Yeah. And right. And it's probably market. How you choose to market yourself is probably what will most affect your posterity in the end. Right. And I think that's not the the law's problem or creative commons problem. It's the artists, it's the people, it's it it, it boils down to more than that, I think. So it, to, it does boil down to more than that. Like you know. never, I, I just like having a link to our past. <laughs> Not a pun on today's uh. <laughs> There's been very little done on it that is of you know, the Mickey Mouse level of iconography. It's not an individual like that, a yeah. piece of art like that that will, you know, completely be ruined in a heartbeat if it ever went Creative Commons. No, but it's still 
going to be Mickey Mouse. It's still Disney. Disney's never going to well, let go of that. No, it's they're the not going to let go of that because Disney really likes the letter of the law, and we all know. But, like, that's actually not a bad comparison because if, if anyone even tried to get close, you know, to Mickey Mouse, they'd, ooh, mounds and mounds of lawsuits would be on their shoulders. That's, that's... But then In again, fact, there was a video game based upon exactly that because Mickey Mouse was not the original Walt Disney. Right, but that's because... Cartoon work, and he created Mickey Mouse, which was a blatant ripoff of another piece that he didn't know yeah, originally, know. Could, which yeah. is a whole Go down this thing. Yeah. But, well, see, we all get a little <laughs> bit sensitive when it's because we're so visually stimulated. But, you know, to go back to some of the stuff we were talking about today, in many ways, I, I, I do find the, the vanilla ice thing a little bit silly next to, let's say, two uh, techno artists that are kind of in the same ballpark, they're sort of in the same genre, and they easily do pretty much the same damn thing, and yet we're not as strict to one thing, and yet we are to others. Like, we're we're strict with melody, but we're not strict with figuration. We have music that, that is built off of the same exact beat, and we don't seem to care about that too much because it's almost Im- implacable as to who created a certain thing, but yet we don't mind when people keep redoing it over and over and over again. And in this case, it actually is following the letter of the law. The letter of the law says they can do all this stuff. They can do all this reconfiguration without changing up the figuration. They can do all this sort of merely stuff. Merely pointing out the fact that there are double standards. Well, yeah, but that's what stuff like this is trying to do. Yeah. You will have a clear cut. This is copywritten. This is somewhat copywritten. <laughs> hey, Superplex, that MS-DOS game that I love, eh, there's, there's some Pac-Man in that. And actually another game, that, another DOS game that preceded it, which uh, whose name escapes me. Because guess what? They got lost to posterity. <laughs> Superplex won, to me, in my world. All right. Well, um, there's no finer pin in this conversation, I think, than you bringing up a game that you've been playing for 18 years. So I think this is a good <laughs> po- point to move on. So, Steve, why don't you... Hit us with your music fact of the week. Fact. Term. It's a term. It's a definition. It can be factual, though. Well, this will be factual. It's an easy one, though. Um, I'm sure you all know it. In fact, I think there was uh, games that incorporated this exact thing. But a nocturne. Do you know what a nocturne is, literally? No. Like, I I feel like I do. Like, nocturnal, right? Like, Uh, 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 like of the night? What do you think, then? Musically. Well, yeah, all right, all right, I guess we're in the same general vicinity. It is a musical composition of a dreamy or romantic character, typically inspired by like or evocative or, or right. evocative of the night. Interesting. I thought it was a prayer. That, wow. No. I'm glad you didn't speak I thought up. It was, I thought it was some <laughs> sort of prayer or something like that. You, At least I you, think You should have kept that how, thought to yourself. I think it was yeah. used we in never that context. How, how, how silly of a theory that was. <laughs> all right, Steve, take us out, and uh, before we say what we always say... Why don't you say what we're going to do next week? All right. I thought we'd have a little bit of an easier week, or at least something that is more in our, I feel like, the last three, four picks that I've made in a row have been pretty crazy, and it have uh-huh. involved a lot of work. Not going to say this doesn't involve a lot of work. We put a, wor- a lot of work into everything, as we even tried to do today. But it's at least a familiar artist we're all going to know. They put out a new album. The album is called Aski Mlodi by The Flaming Lips. Wow, all right. Doing the Flaming Lips. All right, I'm familiar with their okay, hits, no. but I'm not a lifelong fan. Yeah. Steve's not allowed to pick a Matt band. No, it's not a Matt band. Uh, I actually Matt thought band. it would be more of a... No, not really Honestly, pop. it's just another me band from another part of my life. I yeah. like my indie alt never talked about them before. I don't that's think... That's not true. No. Yeah, Steve's brought up Flaming Lips. Well, and I don't remember. Well, that's more on you and your yeah. brain. Well, I'm, anyway. Yeah. I have mentioned them at some point. Flaming Lips, wow. Weird indie alt-rock that was probably... 
once weird, but not is so weird anymore. Yeah, based on you modern know? standards, they're not as weird as not they used weird to be. At all. It's like Marilyn Manson when we did him, how he was like spooky and crazy, and yeah, now he's just kind of that was a sad, yeah, yeah. sad he's, revisit. He's so hopefully that that won't be the same for Flaming Lips. So tune yeah. in for that. Not the not a not a gleaming score on Metacritic. Okay, well, mm. I guess we'll see. I mean, I'm not a huge fan one way or the other. I just always kind of liked them. So mm-hmm. I, Metacritic is like that. Rotten Tomatoes. I, when they rate something super high, I'm like, oh, okay, there's probably some credibility. When they rate anything low, I'm like, well, it's, Whatever. it's Rotten it's Tomatoes slash Metacritic. Metacritic yeah. It's going to be low. All right, mm-hmm. on that note, folks, please join us next week. I hope you enjoyed this week. And remember, as always, music is life. And, and life, life is, is good. good. If you enjoyed this and other album analyses, topics, and guests, please subscribe to the Crash Chords Podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. For more media, also subscribe to Matt's one-on-one interview series, Crash Chords Autographs. To receive emails on all new content, subscribe at the top of our homepage. Also receive updates by liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. And remember, keep the discussion going, because music is life, and life is good. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to share them in the comment board below each post. Otherwise, email us directly at admin at crashchords.com.